Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Fred Hampton in the Suites. Happy you could join us. Trying a new sound setup, so uh, things sound a little different, or they don't sound good, please let me know. Uh, good to see some familiar faces. Always a pleasure to see you, July, as always. Peter, Ali, how you doing? Had a very special episode, and honestly, one that I didn't think I really didn't think I would um, get as involved with as I did. Uh, today's episode is really just about uh, the uh, late great Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, you know, I know that we we just got out of the week with. Uh, MLK Day. Uh, if you work for the government, you got a day off. And I know that we he's been in the news a lot lately just because of that uh, memorial that they put up, <laughs> which, uh, you know, uh, depends on your personal artistic tastes, what you think about it. But, um, you know, King is one of those people that in in our history has sort of been... Uh, I would say appropriated as far as who he was and what he stood for. Now, uh, anyone who's been through a, a U.S. history class or was schooled in America knows a version of the story of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, that story goes a little bit like this. He was a civil rights leader and a preacher who through a series of nonviolent demonstrations and the establishment of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, and a number of rousing speeches, he was able to lead a multiracial coalition of people to make a march on Washington, and then a march in Selma, and a Montgomery bus boycott, which eventually led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and the end of racism and segregation in America. And that's the story that most of us know, that most of us are taught, and part of that is true. I mean, nothing in that story is incorrect, right? He was a preacher who gave rousing speeches. Martin Luther King was somebody who led the Montgomery bus boycott, and he did desegregate the buses. Um, he did lead the March on Washington and make the rousing I Have a Dream speech. And he did uh, play a crucial role in creating public support and generating uh, the civil rights movement. And it's it's hard to imagine the civil rights movement being successful in a lot of ways without a lot of his contributions. But there's a, a lot missing from that story. If that's a story you learned about Martin Luther King Jr., then you really missed out. And you missed out on who he actually was. Because Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't just focused on racism. He wasn't just focused on segregation. He was a 
vehement anti-war activist. And he was very, very critical of capitalism. In fact, uh, King saw the interaction or the intersection between American imperialism and America's obsession with profit as uh, two parts of the same coin. To King, America's willingness to involve itself in wars was directly related to America's desire to enrich corporations and political elites. And I just want to focus a little bit on that. Uh, and, you know, I, I understand, like, look, I a lot of people don't really want to talk about Martin Luther King because we he is kind of, of all the black activists, he's the one we learn about. And I will admit that I have a particular... Uh, fascination with King, just because really he was one of my first role models, uh, one of the people I looked up to the most. I mean, I grew up in a, a mostly white town in Southern Illinois, where uh, we were one of the only black families, if not the only for large periods of time. And my dad's African, you know, he's Nigerian. So he, he didn't exactly have a wealth of knowledge of great African Americans in US history who had done anything, really. He that's not his history. Um, and when you grow up in sort of a, a town like that, you don't really get much exposure to a lot of black revolutionary thought, <laughs> believe it or not. Right. Uh, so King was one of the few people that we actually got to learn about. And it's hard not to find him fascinating as a speaker, as an activist, but really you, you can't really understand King's impact, unless you understand his full politics. And truthfully, you can't even understand why he was really assassinated, unless you understand that he didn't just want to end racism and segregation. He was calling for a fundamental change in America's for-profit, uh, America's adherence to for-profit policies to capitalism and to uh, U.S. imperialism and military interventionism. And it's, it's strange because in doing all this research, you start to remember things or rediscover things that I had forgotten about, right? Um, obviously, most people listening to this, if you've listened to the show before, I assume you have some kind of background uh, knowledge of uh, a lot of the... Uh, uh, the programs that the FBI has done and a lot of the programs that uh, America's history with uh, was shutting down revolutionary activism, let's say. Uh, and many of you will recall that J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI thought King was a communist uh, from early on. And this is according to a, an excerpt from an article titled, Was Martin Luther King a Socialist? by Brandon M. Terry, who's the assistant professor of African and African-American studies and social studies at Harvard University. And he, uh, he says this, quote, Hoover's insistence that King was a communist, or at least a communist dupe, served to justify subjecting him to illegal surveillance, sabotage, and harassment, with the approval of both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. When field agents reported no clear-cut evidence of King's communism, Hoover ordered them to look harder. 
as good bureaucrats, they duly manufactured the desired results. After being berated by Hoover, William C. Sullivan, the head of the Domestic Intelligence Division, delivered this infamous assessment of the 1963 March on Washington. And remember, this is the FBI making this assessment of King. Quote, I believe in the light of King's powerful demagogic speech yesterday, he stands head and shoulders above, or sorry, head and shoulders over all other Negro leaders put together when it comes to influencing great masses of Negroes. We must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro and national solidarity. So uh, big yikes with that. But, but really, if, this is the FBI's official stance on King at this time. Uh, and if you remember the I have a dream speech, I don't know what you think, but I don't really get intimidated when I hear it. I don't think bad thoughts. I don't see that as a threat. But apparently this was enough of a threat to their power structure that they had to mark him. And if you get the chance to read Brandon Terry's article, it's actually great. And he talks about a lot of different evidence of King's sort of socialist leanings from early on. And there was evidence of King having socialist economic views dating back to the late 1940s. Uh, again, from the article, it states, in undated seminary writings from that period, King predicted that, quote, capitalism has seen its best days in America, and not only in America, but in the entire world. It has failed to meet the needs of the masses, end quote. And in a 1952 love letter to Coretta Scott King, King wrote that, quote, I am much more socialistic in my economic theory than capitalistic, end quote. And later, quote, I would certainly welcome the day to come when there will be a nationalization of industry, end quote. And again, uh, Terry's article is, is really great. It does conclude in the end that King, that we cannot establish that King was a, so, a committed socialist, but we also cannot prove that he wasn't one. But really, what I wanted to do today's show about more than anything is it whether or not King was a socialist isn't really the point. The point is whether or not King's expressed views and critiques are reflected in a framework of socialist or communist critique. We are not concerned with defining the scope of one man, no matter how great. That's never what we're trying to do here. We are instead engaged in a project of critique for the purpose of better understanding where and how the inequities arise under our current system. And we are engaged in this project so that we can eliminate as many of those inequities as possible. So that we can make sure that as many people as possible can live freely, can live without unnecessary pain and hardship, and can live with dignity, especially in a post-scarcity world when we've already proven that we can produce enough food and shelter to provide for every person on the planet. So today I wanna to take a look at a, a speech by King, which I believe best exemplifies this critique. And if everything you know about King stems from your grammar school history classes uh, or your American education, uh, you, you've probably never heard of this speech. And I'm ashamed to admit 
or I guess I'm not ashamed. I'm I'm not ashamed. <laughs> no, I, I I I'm a bit ashamed to admit that I had not heard of the speech before. And it's not the mountaintop. It's not I have a dream. Again, both of which are fantastic speeches. But it's a speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave called Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. And this was delivered on April 4th of 1967 at the Riverside Church in New York City. And I have some excerpts from this speech that I'd really like to put in here. Um, and I'm going to play it back. The audio is not great on YouTube. So I want to, I'm going to play it. Please let me know if you cannot hear it clearly or if there are any issues with it. And if not, then I have the excerpts that I want to read anyway, so I can give you my best MLK expression. And uh, just want to mention a couple things in the chat that people are saying that are exactly right. Uh, when Derek is saying, don't feel ashamed, feel betrayed, that's excellent. I think that's a really good way to think of it. And then uh, uh, Fahim saying exactly one year before he was assassinated with King giving the speech. Exactly. That's exactly right, Fahim. And that will, um, we'll talk about what King was doing in 1968 after we talk about some parts of this speech. So uh, King starts his speech first with talking about why he became interested in speaking out at Vietnam. He addresses the question first of why a civil rights leader would feel the need to involve themselves in discussions of war, in discussions of foreign policy, in discussions of Vietnam. And I, I want to play first this part of the speech again, and the speech is uh, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. I want to play this part of the speech where King gives his explanation for that. So if you'll bear with me for just one second. And again, if this is very difficult to hear, no problem. Uh, just let me know and we will, uh, I will just read it out. So this is from a, uh, a recording of that speech that I found on YouTube, which is pretty cool. Okay, here we go. And again, this is King talking about why he became interested in the topic of Vietnam in the first place. And let me know if you can't hear it. There was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam. And I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money, like some demonic destructive suction tubes. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. So how, how was that? Did everyone hear that okay? He did, I don't know, like a thumbs up or something. Um, but he says, you know, I'm, he's a preacher. 
by calling. Oh, excellent. Great. Uh, and I cut off a little bit in the beginning, so I want to add that context. He says, since I am a preacher by calling, I suppose it is not surprising that I have seven major reasons for bringing Vietnam into the field of my moral vision. There is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there were real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. Um, so I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. It is, uh, you know, powerful, powerful words. And also what was freaking me out when I was reading this and listening to it is how applicable so much of what he's saying currently is, is how much of that is still applicable today. When we see the uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the amount of resources being pulled into those wars, the current uh, aid that we're giving to Ukraine, and this is regardless of what you think about whether that's a just war or an unjust war, the fact remains that we're putting billions and billions of dollars into these wars, while here, uh, the city of Jackson, Mississippi, still does not have access to clean water, consistent water. And now their funds are drying up. The donations that were going there, the mutual aid, is, is, is starting to soften. Uh, and Biden continually is still approving billion-dollar aid packages to Ukraine when fixing the water facility in Jackson would cost $1 to $2 billion, a fraction of what we're spending for another foreign war. Uh, later in the speech, King expounds more on this, stating how it is a privilege and the burden of all of us who deem ourselves bound by allegiances and loyalties which are broader and deeper than nationalism and which go beyond our nation's self-defined goals and positions. That we are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. So I also want to compare this, this view of, of, of war and this idea of these voiceless sort of victims well, not sort of victims, but these voiceless victims, these people who are uh, caught in the crosshairs of war and American imperialism overseas. I, I want to compare how King speaks about this with how some of our other leaders have spoken about this. And I, I think it's important for me to play another clip briefly of a very different uh, leader in a very different time, 
I'm sure you'll know him. But this is what uh, this is what someone that you'll know. Uh, this is what he had to say about the nature of war and the necessity of war. Uh, and this is in response to being given a, a Nobel Peace Prize. So we must begin by acknowledging a hard truth. We will not eradicate violent conflict in our lifetimes. There will be times when nations acting individually or in concert will find the use of force not only necessary, but morally justified. I make this statement mindful of what Martin Luther King Jr. said in this same ceremony years ago. Violence never brings permanent peace. Solves no social problem, it merely creates new and more complicated ones. As someone who stands here as a direct consequence of Dr. King's life work, I am living testimony to the moral force of nonviolence. I know there's nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. But as a head of state sworn to protect and defend my nation, I cannot be guided by their examples alone. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. A nonviolent movement could not have halted Hitler's armies. Negotiations cannot convince Al-Qaeda's leaders to lay down their arms. To say that force may sometimes be necessary is not a call to cynicism, it is a recognition of history, the imperfections of man, and the limits of reason. So that was former President uh, Barack Obama. And think what you will about Obama's receipt of the Nobel Peace Prize and think what you will about his views on, on the necessity of military intervention. Uh, maybe you even agree with him. I'm not here to change your mind. But in Obama's eight years in office, the United States carried out what was then a record estimated 1,878 drone strikes. And ask yourself how you think Martin Luther King would have reacted to that, given the quote that Obama makes from King himself. Violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. And we'll get more into the new and more complicated problems that America's violence was causing, that this imperialist violence was causing. And this idea, too, that we have enemies in dark places which even may be true. But this idea that you have to go out and, and destroy all of them. At least King, here, when speaking about Vietnam, goes on to reject the idea that America is fighting the Vietnam War to liberate the Vietnamese. Which was what the justification, that's the justification that was being given at the time, to liberate South Vietnam. And King rejects this idea entirely. 
Uh, I'll play another part of the speech here of what King had to say about why we were actually in Vietnam. And uh, let me just go here and paste in. One day I won't have the same. 904? I'll just read this part out. Just because it's easier that way. Sorry, I'm trying to do like the audio from my phone and then also uh, using my computer to to set everything up. It's a mess. But uh, this is what King had to say about the idea that America fought the Vietnam War to liberate the Vietnamese. And as I ponder the madness of Vietnam and searched within myself for ways to understand and respond in compassion, my mind goes constantly to the people of that peninsula. I speak now not for the soldiers of each side, not for the ideologies of the Liberation Front, not of the Junta in Saigon, but simply of the people who have been living under the curse of war for almost three continuous decades now. I think of them, too, because it is clear to me that there will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know them and hear their broken cries. They must see Americans as strange liberators. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945, after a combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former glory. Our government felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence, and we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international government or an international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For the peasants, this new government meant real land reform, one of the most important needs in their lives. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the war, even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action. But we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. Soon, we would be paying almost the full cost of this tragic attempt at recolonization. And again, that's King talking about America's incentives or America's involvement in the Vietnam War. And I, again, am loath to admit that I didn't know much about the Vietnam War before I started researching for this episode. It's not something that I was really taught about in history class. And I still don't know much about the history there. But from what I've looked at and the small amount of research I've done, what happened in Vietnam from the 1940s onward and what happened to the people in that whole region of what was then Indochina is horrifying. 
And it wasn't just the Vietnam War. It was French colonialism first, followed by a decade-long war against France and the Japanese, uh, followed almost immediately by a two-decades-long war with the United States, and that's the Vietnam War, followed by the third Indochina Wars, which include a nearly 15-year-long war where Vietnam invaded Cambodia and deposed Pol Pot, whose regime killed anywhere between 1.5 to 2 million people, both directly and indirectly. And, and Vietnam and its people, I mean, that's what? Quick maths, 10, 15, 15. Was that 50, 40? At least 40 or 50 years of just war in this region. And if you know anything about the Vietnam War, the kind of shit that we put the Vietnamese through during that war is the kind of stuff that comes straight out of a horror film. If you, if you know anything about Agent Orange or White Phosphorus, which were two chemical compounds that the United States used in their big planes to, to, to go and, and, uh, defoil the jungles where uh, Viet Cong fighters were hiding out and where their encampments were. Uh, the amount of birth defects and, and just deaths, tr tr just mind-numbingly horrifying deaths that were caused by our chemical warfare alone is shocking. Not to mention the soldiers who on our side who went insane and were mowing down villages of civilians. The fact that there's any kind of forgiveness for any American in Vietnam to me is crazy. And again, this was in response to them trying to have some self-determination. Indigenous peoples trying to take over their own land and their own community. And if we were there to liberate, what did we have to liberate? Who did we have to liberate? And why would we liberate people from themselves? And I look at this history and I can't help but think about how U.S. military interventionism has caused similar instability in nearly every region they've been involved with since the Second World War. And I can't help but think about how our military involvement destabilized Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. And I can't help but notice how America's, militar America's militaristic interventionist foreign policy remains unchanged even after fighting in Vietnam, which was a complete shit show, as if we'd learned nothing from our mistakes. But the question comes up, is it a mistake? Is it even a mistake that we continue to make these same, uh, pursue the same foreign policy, the same sort of imperialism, when we should know better by now? And I think that going forward in this speech, King indicates that he doesn't think it's a mistake. No. In fact, King looks at the American foreign policy and America's willingness and fervor to get into foreign conflicts around the world he looks at that as an intentional choice made by a country which seeks only to protect its global profits. He sees America as a nation that at least 
at the very least, prioritizes corporate profits and its own interests and its own control over territories over the lives and livelihood of its own people. And that, I think, is you're getting pretty socialist there. When your political priorities are not about providing for people, are not about creating more uh, opportunities for your people to live happy and healthy lives, caring for them, but are instead driven by a profit motive. Uh, you're getting into the territory of making a critique about capitalism that becomes inescapable, right? That's These are things that, um, you know, I, I think we'll see further in this speech that King is very much, uh, he's not very confident that capitalism is a tool solve this problem. So I will try to play another clip here. This is, um, I'll play another clip. And I know that some people in the chat have said it's, it's more clear if I speak it. But I do think, um, obviously, I'm Bide and He's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So I think I think as far as orators go, he's got he's got me, you know, just a little bit. He's got me. So I'm going to try to uh, play him. And if not, then I will. Uh, I'll read this out. But this is. Uh, towards the end of his speech. And this is after he spends a long time during the speech uh, talking about how how explicitly he believes that America's military interventions are specifically to protect its profits. Uh, that's the, the real key. And this is towards the end of the speech where he's talking about what he thinks America should be doing uh, instead of the kind of bullshit that it's on. So I'm going to go to here. And again, if you can't hear it very clearly, I can repeat it or say it again, but let's give, let's give King a chance to, to, to speak his truth. Okay. Here we go. So such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression, which has now justified the presence of US military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investments accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia, why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. (laughs) 
increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas to see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out, no, no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our alignment with the land of Genesis of South America and say, this is not just. Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. So um, I hope everyone heard that because everything he's spitting there is complete fire. Um, I want to emphasize again some of these key takeaways from what King's saying here. He quotes Kennedy, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. But then he says increasingly by choice or by accident, this is the role our nation has taken. The role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that we are to get if we are to get on the right side of word of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. And then he says we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing oriented society to a person oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. 
So the system that prioritizes profits over people makes it, when that is the system, it's impossible to overcome parts of that system that create racism, materialism, and militarism. And if, if this isn't a critique of capitalism, I folks, I don't know what is. And I'll read one more line just because it is, this line is, this is the kind of stuff that King could say that makes you kind of want to go back to church, <laughs> you know, like in a weird way, he's got, it's got this like otherworldly, like ethereal spiritual quality to it that like just hits the core of you says some real true shit while it's doing that. And he says a true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the, on the one hand, we are called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to the beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Bars. Okay? Not an individual sort of, we give out a little money here and we give out a little money there. But a critique, a question of why are there so many beggars on this road? And why does everyone who travel on this road end up getting beaten? Why does everyone on this road need a good Samaritan? This is, we need to fix the road so that we won't even need to depend on the unlikelihood of good Samaritans taking care of everyone who happens to, to go on that journey. And I think that's the kind of stuff like that is super important. Uh, King also talks about how the West is investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits with no concern for the social betterment of the countries. And how it's impossible to look at that and say that that is just, that that is a just and good action. Now, I don't want to paint King as a complete communist here because King is also cognizant enough of his audience and who he is, that he can't just outright say, I'm a communist now. And indeed, in the same speech, he, well, first, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify King as a communist either. Uh, if anything, a socialist or a democratic socialist. But again, it doesn't matter because the critiques are, are, are poignant and they're good and they make sense. And they, they lead us to the same conclusion that we need to re, there needs to be systemic restructuring in order to address these inequities. So whatever he calls himself, it doesn't matter. Or whatever he was, that's, that's irrelevant, right? But his speech does make an explicit sort of, um, uh, a plea, well, not, not a plea against, but, but talks about why communism is becoming so popular. And he says, you know, this kind of positive revolution of values that America needs to undertake is actually the best defense against communism. War is not the answer. Communism will never be defeated by the use of atomic bombs or nuclear weapons. Let us not join those who shout war through their misguided passions, 
urged the United States to relinquish its participation in the United Nations. These are days which demand wise restraint and calm reasonableness. We must not engage in a negative anti-communism, but rather in a positive thrust for democracy, realizing that our greatest defense against communism is to take offensive action in behalf of justice. We must, in behalf of justice, we must, with positive action, seek to remove those conditions of poverty, insecurity, and injustice, which are the fertile soil in which the seed of communism grows and develops. End quote. And you know why the seeds of communism grow and develop in that soil? Because people look at their conditions in that soil and look and see what's causing it, and it's capitalism. Better yet, they look and see all the wealth being produced by a capitalist system and how much they have to work under it, and then see that they're still proper fucked. They're still poor. They still don't have access to health care. They still have no uh, actual real power in how they live their own lives. And they look and see that it shouldn't be that way because of the excess production that that uh, capitalism can do. Um, and that's why they turn to, to communism. It's funny because the soil that King is critiquing here is the soil of, of, of capitalism. But he continues, it is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our pr uh, proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch, arch anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has a revolutionary spirit. Therefore, communism is a judgment against our failure to make democracy real and follow through on the revolutions that we in initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into sometimes hostile world, declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. Uh, say what you will about King. He had bars. He really had bars. And now before we, we take some callers, I want to get to some of the conclusions here. So by 1968, again, this is a speech that King made in 1967. Uh, by 1968, King is talking about a fundamental need to reorder American society. And he's talking about this very explicitly. He's still speaking out against the Vietnam War, stating, uh, quote, I am convinced that the war in Vietnam has played havoc with our domestic destinies. The bombs that fall in Vietnam explode at home, end quote. Again, bars. But it, as importantly as his still speaking out against the war in Vietnam and his connection of the struggle of the Vietnamese in that war and the Viet Cong and, and, and that entire, the entire indigenous people of that nation, how their struggle is reflective of the black American struggle is a reflective of the struggle of all oppressed people. In 1968, King is also trying to organize a poor people's campaign. And this poor people's campaign King believed 
that we had to find, quote, the militant middle ground between riots on the one hand and weak and timid supplication for justice on the other, end quote. And this is interesting. King, King says, you know, I don't want to say that King is advocating for violence here, but he becomes very explicitly invested in the idea of civil disobedience, which, you know, is a step up from just uh, uh, sort of nonviolent, lovey-dovey compliance. So he's saying, no, we don't move. We, 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 we break laws but we do it without violence. Uh, And with this poor people's campaign, King planned for an initial group of 2000 poor people to descend on Washington, DC, Southern states and Northern cities to meet with government officials to demand jobs, unemployment insurance, a fair minimum wage and education for poor adults and children designed to improve their self image and self esteem. And it's, it's, it's not lost on me that a lot of these demands that King is making in 1968 with this poor people's campaign are the same fucking demands we're making today. We're still trying to fight for a fair minimum wage, better unemployment insurance, education. God, the, 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 the amount of shit that we were going through for $10,000 worth of cancellation of student debt that now maybe might not even happen anymore. Or the, the, the degree to which our politicians flubbed the child tax credit, something that by re- all reports had done something like halved child poverty in America and just let it expire. Like we're fighting for literally the same things today. And it's important to note that King in becoming more explicit and talking about what amount to class and structural critiques or, or classist or, or um, critiques of uh, class analysis and structural critiques of America is shifting in the same sort of way um, down the same road that someone like uh, Malcolm X was finding himself in. Now, Malcolm X was coming from a different direction, but Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were converging towards the same goal for liberation. They were coming to a lot of the same conclusions because they're making these critiques, these structural critiques, and they're letting the uh, they're letting their uh, analysis take them where it logically should. And both of them started to see how the path towards liberation went, at least in part, through socialism, and if not socialism, then through anti-capitalism and through the democratization of production, through the democratization of power. So in 1968, uh, King is demanding jobs for the unemployed and a national jobs program, stating, when our nation was bankrupt in the 30s, we created an agency to provide jobs to all, uh, sorry, jobs to all at their existing level of skill. In our overwhelming affluence today, what excuse is there for not setting up a national agency for full employment immediately. He even suggests a jobs program to create decent replacement housing for people living in the slums, where the workers would demolish the slums, quote, to be replaced by decent housing built by residents of the ghettos. So using a federal jobs guarantee to employ people 
to build their own houses that they could then reside in, solving two, you know, two birds with one stone. And this is not unprecedented. FDR did a lot of this shit during the, um, the Great Depression. If you look at a lot of school buildings, in, especially a lot of them in smaller towns, um, a lot of government buildings, they're just building a bunch of government and school buildings to employ people to basically do something. This is like the same sort of program. And this is what King is explicitly calling for in 1968. Uh, and one other thing I found just fascinating in researching is that, you know, King is even identifying how, you know, the idea of black faces in white spaces will not liberate black people. It's not enough that a few upwardly mobile uh, POCs get welcomed into the, man the professional managerial class. His analysis is becoming much more class-focused, at least explicitly. He is now, in 1968, being much more explicit about how there needs to be structural, America needs to make structural changes to address structural inequities. And he's being much more explicit in his class analysis. Uh, he says, quote, uh, E. Franklin Frazier, in his profound work, Black Bourgeoisie, laid painfully bare the tendency of the upwardly mobile Negro to separate from his community, divorce himself from responsibility to it, while failing to gain acceptance in the white community. There's been significant, there, there have been significant improvements from the days Frazier researched, but anyone knowledgeable about Negro life knows its middle class is not yet bearing its weight. Every riot has carried strong, a strong overtone of hostility of lower class Negroes towards the affluent Negro and vice versa. No contemporary study of scientific depth has totally studied this problem. Uh, and then social science should be able to suggest mechanisms to create a wholesome black unity and a sense of peoplehood while the process of integration proceeds. But he's identifying this problem of upward mobility is not, not the, it's not the way. It does not solve the structural inequities. But this brings me to really the conclusion of why, why I really wanted to do this and why we should, why it's important to remember King as a socialist or not even as a socialist, but why, why is this important? Why is it important to know what he was saying? Well, because the point is not to understand who MLK really was. As great as he was, he was just one man. We're not here to hero worship, even though I think it's totally fair to say that if he's your hero, as he was mine and still is in a lot of ways, he's still my hero. Um, we don't need heroes. We need good critiques. We need good information. We need to understand why these inequities are arising. And that's the point. The point is to understand why Martin Luther King Jr. was so respected by people in the know, by real ones, and why his words were so potent as to lead millions to march with him and millions more around the world to support his cause for liberation. Because if we understand Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s revolutionary thoughts and perspectives, we will see the political issues he spoke out against and the liberation he was fighting towards remain just as relevant to us today. America is still fighting imperialist wars. 
like it did in Vietnam. America is still prioritizing profits over people. America still has no interest in addressing structural critiques when there are profits to be made by, you know, some general who now sits on the board of Raytheon and uh, knows that keeping money in Ukraine is, is good, actually, for him, for his wallet. And it, our history books are, are very selective in how they portray Dr. King. They emphasize his adherence to nonviolence, his insistence on loving his enemies. And they emphasize these things not because they weren't true, but because these are the parts of Dr. King's ideology and methods of activism which are the easiest to placate. They are the most timid. They lead to the least amount of actual uh, challenging of, of um, structural inequities. They don't talk about how he spoke about, we need a more militant solution. They don't talk about his class critiques because those are still just as potent today. They don't talk about American his anti-war critiques because if you would just read his speeches, if we had any idea of it, of what he had said before, then a lot of people would be turned on to the idea that America's uh, insistence on invading Iraq, Afghanistan, of bombing Libya, of bombing Syria, that all of these things are the same fucking mistake that America's been making for at least its entire existence since World War II. And I think it's very important to note that this idea of painting a picture of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as just a complete pacifist and someone who did not make a class analysis, this, this picture that they're trying to paint is something that uh, other revolutionaries and other thinkers have identified as a tactic used by the powers that be to maintain power. It's a, it's a method of acting like your nation or your power, your government is accepting a revolutionary and accepting revolutionary thought while robbing that revolutionary of any actual revolutionary value that they have, any revolutionary message. And I, I want to read uh, this. This is, uh, comes from uh, State and Revolution by uh, Lenin. But he says, uh, you know, this is something that has happened repeatedly to theories of revolutionary thinkers and leaders of oppressed classes fighting for emancipation. During the lifetime of great revolutionaries, the oppressing class constantly hounded them, received their theories with the most savage malice, the most furious hatred, and the most unscrupulous campaigns of lies and slander. After their death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, so to say, and to hollow their names to a certain extent for the consolation of the oppressed classes and with the object of duping the latter while at the same time robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance, blunting its revolutionary edge and vulgarizing it. Today, the bourgeoisie and the opportunists within the labor movement concur in this doctrine of Marxism. They omit, obscure, or distort the revolutionary side of this theory, its revolutionary soul. They push to the foreground and extol 
what is or seems acceptable to the bourgeoisie, end quote. But again, this idea of uh, robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance, that's what's happening with King. The, the statue went up and, you know, looks fun, looks funny. Um, some people say it looks like a dick. I kind of thought that the first time I saw it. I'm not going to lie. But we have all these monuments now of King everywhere. And so it looks like our society has really accepted him. He's a hero. People know they can't really talk out about him. But they don't want you to really know what he was about. And look, in the past few decades, more people have learned more about the radical politics of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I'm sure the internet is largely, largely responsible for this. More and more people can now access information about King and his politics that simply wasn't available to them before. They could read the text of his speeches and watch clips of him on YouTube with the few clicks of a mouse. And that's good, but corporations have no interest in portraying MLK as a socialist or portraying any of his socialist thoughts or portraying any of his still relevant critiques of American imperialism and capitalism. And that's not going to change anytime soon. In fact, it's, it's likely to get worse, if I were going to guess. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example or a couple of examples. Uh, so AI technology is coming. We know that. It's still in development. It's something that the goal of AI technology is to make something that truly can be a general purpose artificial intelligence to where it can handle uh, doing a bunch of jobs that people are currently being paid for so that capitalists can uh, use it and get rid of people in these jobs. That's basically why it's here, right? Uh, it could be used for a lot of other things, but with capitalists funding it and controlling it, that's what's going to happen because it's a profit motive. But uh, one of the new AI bots is Chat uh, AI or Chat GPT. I'm sure all of you at this point have heard of it by now. We've talked about it a bit on this show when we were, uh, I think we were sexting it or something like that. We were, you know, just being fucking stupid with it. But I would suggest you go ask it some questions. Maybe. Actually, you know, I don't want to make that endorsement because they're probably collecting a bunch of data and I don't want to be blamed when fucking Terminator 2 shows up at your door and like blast your head off for asking the wrong question or whatever. But I asked chat uh, GPT. I asked it a couple of questions. And the first question I asked was uh, if Martin Luther King Jr. was a socialist. And I received this answer, right? Martin Luther King Jr. was not a socialist. He was a Baptist minister and civil rights leader who advocated for nonviolence and equality for African-Americans through civil disobedience and peaceful protest. He is best known for his role in the American civil rights movement and the advancement of civil rights using nonviolent uh, or using nonviolent civil disobedience based on his Christian beliefs. Isn't that nice? Isn't that fucking grand? There's not a single mention of his anti-Vietnam stance and not a single mention of his uh, class analysis. It's not there. And they say straight up, no, he was not a socialist. I'll tell you the other questions I asked. I asked, uh, did the FBI assassinate Martin Luther King Jr.? Just complete, nope. Move along. That was chat. That was the AI's answer. Nope, it did not happen. 
it was that one guy, whatever his fucking name was, I, I forget, uh, Harvey Oswald or whatever. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald, move along, move along, or whatever it was. That was, or, or was that Kennedy? I don't even fucking remember who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. But like, and then I asked this chat AI too, uh, a question about Fred Hampton. And like, did the FBI assassinate Fred Hampton? And they said, nope. In fact, there was a raid on Fred Hampton's uh, complex and he was shot during it. He was shot during a raid. No mention of the FBI, even though it's at this point, it's, it's beyond reproach that they were involved directly. No mention of um, really uh, the justification for it. No idea of like, this wasn't fucked up. This was bad. It shouldn't have happened. Nope. This is the official narrative. Uh, MLK was a civil rights leader who did civil disobedience uh, for the equality for African-Americans. That's it. And the problem for erasure, too, isn't just coming from corporations or AI. You know, I don't want to act like I'm just scared of the Matrix taking over Martin Luther King Jr.'s memory, even though I am. But the the problem of erasure, erasure is it's been coming for a long time from corporations and their political puppets. And it's it's happening, of course, it's happened with textbooks and everything. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that. But more recent examples are Florida just passed a law and announced that it's going to forbid its schools from teaching a, a new advanced placement course, so a new AP course on African-American history. And their justification is that they're claiming that it, quote, significantly lacks educational value, end quote, and violates state law. Isn't that fun? Learning about African-American history, learning about, you know, even the idea of having an advanced AP class about African-American history is they're saying it significantly lacks educational value. First of all, fuck you. Fuck you. Sorry, I've been trying not to curse as much today. But sometimes you just feel it like what? Like, get out of here with that bullshit. What are you talking about? Tell me from everything that we just heard about this speech beyond Vietnam that King gave. Tell me that lacks educational value. Like, for real, tell me it does. If you believe that, I got a boat to sell you or a bridge to sell you, whatever the, the saying is, right? And and just going back to this law. Um, you may recall that uh, Governor uh, Ron the Snowflake enacted the Stop Woke Act last summer. And yes, that is, that is the law's real name. And yes, I know it's extremely fucking stupid. Extremely fucking stupid. But this law, the Stop Woke Act, I can't even say it like seriously. Like, really, dude? The Stop Woke Act? Like, please. Oh, my God. But this law expands the legal de uh, definition of discrimination to include lessons about racial or gender based privilege and oppression, stating that no one should be instructed to feel guilty, anguish or other forms of psychological distress as a result of their race or gender. Like the way that they can weaponize this kind of. Woke language of oppression and reappropriate it and try to weaponize it so that they can continue to oppress people so that they continue to keep people dumb 
and keep the masses divided. I think that's why I wanted to do this episode. And that's why I think it's important that we remember King as he actually was. Not that that's even important. Again, we remember the critiques that King made. That's the legacy. That's the true legacy. Because look, when when all is said and done, all of us will live and die. And even if you're the president of the United States, hell, even if you were like the king of the world or something like that, um, your individual life, your individual sort of journey on this earth is at some point, I think, inevitably bound to be forgotten by the hands of time. I'm sorry. I don't mean to depress anyone here, but I bet probably only a handful of people here can even name every U.S. president. And if a fucking U.S. president hasn't been, uh, can't be remembered today, and it's only been like 250 years, or three, buddy, uh, I don't think we got a chance. But what chance do we actually have for immortality? What chance do we actually have for making a real impact here? It's to look at these kinds of structural inequities and do everything we can to correct them so that everyone who comes after us has a better time of it and has more of an ability to do the cool shit that human beings can do. Like go to the moon and like, I don't know, do all that cool alien shit that happens on Star Trek. But that is the point of why it's important to remember Martin Luther King Jr. for what he said, what the, the critiques that he had, the, the contributions that he's making to our analysis of American imperialism, that's the good stuff. That's what's important. And don't let these people with their, uh, their monuments and their uh, slick words on the news and their holiday, their federal holiday, don't let them fool you into thinking they've accepted that revolutionary for the revolutionary he was. And don't be tricked. And that's why I wanted to do this. But that's, that's what I got with this. I'm happy to take some callers. Thank you all for sticking with me. I know it was a little longer than usual, but um, look, there's a lot to go over with him. And he's, uh, I, think, I think the based on how good his critiques are and how important he's been, I, I think it was worth it, but uh, you can let me know. Uh, Levy, welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. How are you doing? You go ahead and unmute yourself. Uh, just hit the unmute button if you can. Yeah, there we go. Okay, great. Hey, hi, Brad. Um, actually, I just looked on the. I was just looking on the call-in app and I saw this show and I. I just thought, well, okay, I'll just listen for a second. And, and I realized you were talking about MLK and uh, the Breaking the Silence speech will be on Vietnam. Have you just listened to it? Or Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We, um, okay. I don't know when you came in, but we, we listened to came it. came into and... your critique. I, I came in as you were talking about it just uh, a few yeah. minutes ago, but it's okay because um, I listened to That's my favorite of his speeches. I listen to it yeah. and read it every year. And um, I'm a teacher. And so I have my students um, read it and react to it. So their homework for this last week includes uh, 
listening to the speech and reading through it. And I have different homeworks for the history class, the US government class, my English class based on on uh, on on that speech specifically. So um, I'm familiar with it. And um, I, I teach like high school. Um, yeah, uh, a small progressive Islamic school, actually. I'm not Muslim, but I got the job and been there about five years. And, oh, uh, that's great. That's yeah, excellent. Yeah. Thanks. So it's in the humanities department. And uh, it's, you know, I, I actually sort of moved into history to fill for someone else. I'm primarily, you know, British and I'm more uh, a literature person. But, yeah. um, but it's been really interesting to read properly or reread the, the the people's history of the United States with like the 10th grade. Yeah. And there's a moment in chapter 15, um, I think it's called a people's war question mark um, about, you know, the end of world war two, the, the, and, and it's Zinn saying, you know, what happened to fascism? He says, fascism, uh, if we think fascism, uh, we think of having destroyed Mussolini Italy and Adolf Hitler obviously in Germany and we took down the emperor in Japan but you know the elements that make fascism are racism militarism and imperialism so very similar to the triplets of evil right yeah Um, isn't that isn't that interesting how that works out yeah so he says so so did we actually get rid of fascism you know (laughs) at that point and I think it's a very profound question a lot of people are talking about fascism these days yeah, but in a kind of left, right, red, blue kind of way, which is frustrating. Instead of, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's by design too. Uh, For sure. Levy. The the idea is if you you know here in America where we have um, and I, I the Islamic school that you work at I I don't know if it was in America or if it was in um, oh it's in the US yeah I'm from okay. England but I'm in okay. I'm in the US like married to well, an American so I've been here a while. Oh great! Well, um, I. Congratulations! I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know the the idea of uh, any sort of substantive conversation about U.S. policy, what you find is there are a lot. Uh, there's a lot of agreement between uh, people whose interests are actually aligned, and by interests aligned, yeah. we, we look at like class interests, right? Exactly. Uh, we don't we don't want to go into meaningless, stupid, pointless wars. Uh, we want certain um, sort of guarantees for our citizens. We want access to health care. We want to be able to go to a doctor when we're sick. Tell and and <laughs> yes. th- these, are, these are conversations that don't even need to have a red, blue. Uh, there's no, there doesn't need to be a dichotomy here because there's yeah. so much consensus. Well, we there's yeah, like, exactly. Most of these, um, these popular things have like 50, 60, 70, 80 percent. Right. on some of these major social questions. It's always driven me insane if you meet anyone from a country, whether we call it the developed country that has um, health care. Uh, right. And then you come to the US, you start to, after a while, you start to feel that you're, you know, you, just, you socialize and you start to feel a little insane. Did I have it? Am I right that I could just go, you know? Right. Then, I, you know exactly. then I went on exactly. holiday one time and uh, I was sick. I think we were in Italy or, yeah, we were in Italy. We just visited my family and we popped across on the airline. I'm not rich. I'm just a teacher and uh, my wife's an immigration lawyer. So it's not a lot of money, but it's cheap. Yeah. Also there. It's good work though. It's good work. Yeah. yeah it's good work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I was there and got sick and I went into the, um, pharmacist and they were like, Oh, here. And they wrote me out a little, um, 
thing like immediately for the for the medicine that I needed sent mm -hmm. me to the pharmacy which was like just up this little wine street just across the way went in one person in front of me and then me he saw me within five minutes looked in my throat said ah yeah and wrote it down you know didn't matter that I was visiting on holiday wrote down a prescription I went back and got them you know really really cheap really quick really nice you know it's not yeah. nice to be ill but it was a nice reminder of what it should be like I was like, oh yeah, I'm not crazy. That is, that's what it was like. That's how it is. You know, so. but, but Levy, why? Let, let me let me ask a question. Go ahead. Why would you want to be able to just get your prescription without any problems when we could be bombing the Middle East? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I, I mean I, look, we can't do it all. <laughs> yeah. But uh, being in a state of constant war, pretty cool. It's a pretty cool... <laughs> yeah, it's a permanent pretty, war economy. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, well, I, it's, I, it's spelled out there, and it's, it's funny, you know, that's he's that's what Martin Luther King's talking about, right? That The one yeah. thing I wanted to say, that's why I wanted to call it, it's like, every time you do it each year, you go back to it, it's a little more sad, right, the next year, because yeah. you're like, he's saying, because of the spiritual malaise that we're suffering from, which is to be a thing-based instead of a person-based society at its right. essence. That's the death of the soul, right? And then he said, the trip, if we don't deal with these triplets of evil, racism, militarism, and extreme materialism, we're going to you know, have a spiritual blackout. We're going we're gonna, to like, have a spiritual death. We're approaching it. It's hard not to think that we got there already. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's hard not yeah. to feel I like, mean, oh, we're, in the, we're well past twilight. So... <laughs> I mean, I think that's such a good point. And, you know, I think the thing that really kind of broke me a bit while reading this speech is, and I know this this has become almost like a cliche to say this, but you would have thought that he could have been making the same speech today. For sure, yeah. In a lot of ways. And, you know, sometimes things are cliche or or because they're they're just that true. You know, mm -hmm. it's over and over again. And I love that line he has about, um, the, uh, what is it? The, the indifference to indifference. What is it? And he's talking about how we've, uh, we have a tendency mm -hmm. to adjust oh, or become to indifferent. Yeah. Yes. It's like Cornel West says it all the time, right? To is, he always quotes that piece is about being maladjusted to injustice is a good thing. Yes. Right? You shouldn't become adjusted to injustice, which I, That's right. I see that all the time when you're on Twitter or anywhere especially in America, there's a lot of, um, like, well, you shouldn't have been, whatever, X, whilst in the, in the presence of a policeman, or, you know, right. if, if you don't, there's all sorts of excuses for things, but it's like people adjusting themselves to a very unjust, malfunctioning system. Right. You know, I don't know right. what that's all about, but, um, yeah. I buy, but it's, it's, it's a shock to the senses, the moral senses, for sure, like, Absolutely. Absolutely. What's the other thing I would like to say in that? I'll get out of the way. But um, yeah, I love it just rhetorically. The power of the speech when he says a true revolution in values. And he says it like whatever, four, five, six times right at the end um, of the, the, the sort of finishing cascade. And uh, I don't know, always so powerful. Every single time I listen to it, it doesn't matter. You know, it's yeah. not just... I was trying to tell my students, it's not just that it's excellent, rhetoric and wild voice. It's a man standing in their truth, 
one year to the day before they'll be assassinated. And he knows yeah. it. And he says to the lay people there, we have to be, be prepared to lay down our lives. He's challenging yeah. them yeah. to join him. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, it's astounding. He, it is. Courage. It is. And, and I, I have a guess that a true revolution of values line that you're either thinking of is it's either the one about the Jericho Road Oh yeah, the um, whole road must be. So yeah, that, that yeah. Place. yeah, yeah. All so the way through that, there's like yeah, five, that whole five instances is, or so. Yeah, yeah, and every one of them is a bar. It's just it's <laughs> it's, it's absolute fire, and and it's you know it, it is it it is sad because you part of me wonders where all these people have gone. And yeah, I think I mean, I'm starting to think that's a false way to think about it, though. Mm. I, I really think it's a false way to think about it, because I think we're those people, whether we, we think we are or not. And it's the power here comes from the how how potent the critique is and how true it is. And if that's what we're sticking to that is impossible to assassinate. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you think JFK, 60, you know, that 63 to 70, Fred Hampton, all those, those people mm-hmm. were whacked in that period of time. Uh, but also the, just the number of people imprisoned, I think uh, Christopher Hedges always says the other, you know, the next, um, next uh, Malcolm X is like in prison right now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I, it's, I take hope today. I, I saw today that the, you know in England and in France the um, the unions is all yeah, that was cool. a general strike in France and England yeah. is on its way. So yeah, very hopeful. Yeah, that's hopeful and that's good news. Um, mm-hmm. Levy, thank you so much for calling. Yeah, you're, 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 um, yeah thank you, thank you for yeah. Me. Nice to nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Uh, okay. Great. Take care. Um, you too. You too. And uh, th- that's so awesome that he's teaching his students uh, about that speech. Uh, that's excellent. That's really excellent. Uh, hopefully it's not in Florida or Levy's going to jail, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to take his ass to the slammer. Rhonda, the, uh, what was my nickname for him? The snowflake. Rhonda snowflake. I don't know if I'm going to use that. It's a little washed. I just want to call him a piece of shit. Um, but you know, whatever, uh, Peter, what's going on, man? Hey, bye. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Hello from the, uh, state of, uh, wrong snowflake dissenters. <laughs> I didn't know you were over there in Florida. That's a, oh man, that's a, a terrible place for you. <laughs> uh, no, actually I'm right now, uh, in the island station in the, uh, on the island. Okay. Yeah. In central yeah. Florida, uh, to, to the north and the south is the lagoon and to the west is the river and, uh, to the east is the Atlantic ocean. And it's pretty quiet. Oh, okay. Okay, I, I live yeah. under the bridge with a bunch of a home homeless people. Uh, two oh, of really? them. Yeah. I'm going to take really? two of them to for, uh, breakfast, uh, on Monday because I want to learn more about the homeless situation in America. So, oh, yeah, it sucks. It's a, it's a piece of shit. It, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. yeah. I want, again, great topic. And, uh, uh, as always, uh, I want to start with a question to use that, you know, uh, MLK had a lot of, uh, extramarital affairs. Uh, mm-hmm. what's with the uh, Malcolm X? 
uh, has Malcolm, I don't we come across any bad things that about Malcolm X. He's like yeah. as, as clean as, as a whistle. Is that I true? I think that's right. I mean, uh, Malcolm X had a history before he became a um, joined the Nation of Islam and before he went to prison. So he was, you know, he was doing. He was doing the whole fuckboy thing out there, doing his thing. Extra marital affair stuff. Mark, yeah, he I didn't really we don't we don't really know of any that he had, and from all accounts, uh we would have known about them with the okay. FBI. So okay. uh he was he was pretty clean as a whistle. Yes, it's amazing because uh uh I think uh about MLK, uh I'm just glad you bring this topic up because uh Malcolm X, in one of his speech, has said that uh, I call the white majoritarian democracy, which is the American democracy, which really is a white majoritarian democracy. They always want to uh, prop up certain people who are nonviolent, yeah. who are not willing to share their blood for you know for for their freedom. Uh, so uh, I don't think uh, Malcolm X is necessarily implied. Uh, it is a MLK, but you know he's basically there will be Uncle Tom's, you know. So I, so what I'm trying to say is this is that Obama, in a sense, even though you know I think the his Nobel Prize is just another tactics by the Western world to glorify selectively certain black folks so yeah. that they can showcase hey we did all we can do and uh, you know we we do you know we treat black people equally when in fact that's not the case at all so right, right. i just want to like that. the similar thing because i'm a big vietnam war buff i'm pretty much watched every well, i want to stress that the church uh riverside church speech is uh in that a documentary called the uh, the uh, king in the wilderness, it, it says that after this speech that you talk about today, uh, some of uh, Kim's closest associates started to distancing themselves from Kim. From 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 Kim, uh, that's a very interesting documentation, uh, a doc documentary. I, I, I would suggest because of what King has said in that speech literally made himself very very unpopular. I think when he was killed. He has a seventy-five percent disapproval rating. Yeah, right? yeah, he did. Right. So, so, so that's one thing I want to mention. Second is that uh, here I have a little disagreement with you. Is that King has a, a entourage of advisors and including speech writers, meaning that mm -hmm. his speech actually is written by someone. I know one of them is a Jewish guy and who is a communist. And yeah. I that yeah, I think what, um, what was his name, Levinson? Yeah, or yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I'm trying to say is that you know, to me, I think at at that uh, stage of his life and his movement, I I'm not uh, taking away anything that he said in this uh, uh, in this speech about the socialistic ideas and all that. But I personally felt that a lot of those ideas probably is influenced from his uh, speech writers and uh, and advisors. It's my opinion, because in my opinion, he, at that time he probably see his end of his life is getting closer and closer, and uh, I doubt that he has a, a, a any concrete 
plan. You know, in other words, the 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 African American the social the societal status of African Americans at that time it's still so low that just be able to survive it will be considered a a, a success already. So let you know, let alone laying out exactly you know what you know is you know how he want to build up America through a socialist approach or even a communist a, a, approach. So this is where, so I, I'm, I'm going to say, what I means is this, even though he said those words, but I doubt that he personally uh, has thought it through because I think he's being advised by a lot of uh, his advisors, you know, at least one of them is a communist. And uh, well, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong, but right. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying probably factually, this is probably how he's influenced when he say those things. Sure. But I think, I think to make a speech like that and to come out as a person who's going to take all the heat for the speech, um, he would have at least thought through and agreed with what was in that speech, even mm-hmm. if he didn't generate everything that came from it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I respect about King there too. I mean, like King, you know, like you said, became very unpopular because of this speech. Uh, it was not the wave. I know it's, it's easy now for all of us to look at Vietnam and say uh, the war was wildly unpopular and also uh, a, a needless tragedy and a needless loss of human life. At the time when King came out against it, uh, that was not the case. This was more like the Dixie Chicks coming out against the, uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's right. And yeah. getting canceled because of it. Yeah. So the last point I want to just make is that uh... – also, uh, I just I gotta say too, I'm sorry, uh, ghost of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for comparing your bravery to the bravery of the Dixie Chicks. Um, my bad, but I mean, like, come on, that was pretty. That was pretty boss of them too. Um, and they got some good. They got some good hits. So uh, their yeah. landslide is good. So anyway, we can continue on. <laughs> yeah, the, the last point I want to make is because uh, uh, I have a uh, I've been following the. All the Vietnam War topics since uh, 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have always been taught that Vietnam War is a tragic, tragic mistake made by the U.S. government. I have recently concluded that actually is not the case. It's a deliberate, premeditated mm-hmm. war. So, so what came, of course, when he come out and say, make a speech like that. He cannot make such a, uh, he, he, he's not in position to, to make such an allegation. But uh, now, from what we know now, uh, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam is completely premeditated. Is U.S. voluntarily, knowingly, and deliberately entered the, 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 the war. And, and the, the, only, the reason I, wa- I want to stress is this. First of all, Vietnam War is never is not part of the history in high school or even colleges, right? Because this is uh, exactly why the U.S. is uh, later will repeat the same mistakes, if you want to call it mistakes, in in the Afghanistan uh, Afghanistan War, in the Second Iraq War, 
and, and, and all those good stuff. Because right. these are the deliberate act and it's not some, some president, oh, all of a sudden I, he, he uh, drank too much and then find out right. we should go there as tragedy. No, no, they, right. it's a very yeah. whitewashing war to call Vietnam War uh, a tragedy or mistake. It's actually a deliberate war crime, basically. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think that's a really good point. And I think King in the speech kind of uh, alludes to that as well when he talks about how um, even when the, Fren the French realized that they had made a huge mistake in getting into this war, this earlier war with Vietnam, before the Vietnam War that America fought in, America was a, the aggressor trying to force France to continue to uh, fight in the war. Yes, they were continually pushing them. And then he also talks about in the speech about how America has its profits to protect all over the globe. Like yeah. that is an intentional choice. That's not well, a mistake. And that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm very surprised. I'm so glad you did this that I'm very shocked that uh, MLK actually already knew this in 1967. Because yeah. I only learned this uh, after reading this uh, uh, Robert Mc. Uh, um, Robert McNamara, McNamara, this, uh, he's the defense secretary during the Vietnam, uh, Vietnam War during the uh, JFK and the uh, LBJ administration. He went to Vietnam to have a, a scholarly, scholarly exchange with the Vietnamese government. And the Vietnamese scholar told him upfront that they consider the U.S. Uh, war against Vietnam started in 1947. Because yeah. he said it's a you, you, uh, it's the airplane, it's the tank, it's the American airplane, it's American uh, tanks, it's American bombs, and it's American money that supported the French, and that's why. And uh, Robert McNamara immediately admit that that, that is true. <laughs> so yeah. Vietnam War actually is the longest, longest lasting war the U.S. Yeah. ever engaged. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I, I think that's right. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating how, um, how King and the people around him in making the speech were able to see that. I think that's, that's kind of what has strikes me the most about this speech. Um, you know, we did, I, I think on one of the last episodes, we did uh, Malcolm X's famous speech, the ballot or the bullet, which is incredible. Uh, just an incredible, incredible speech all the way around. Um, and some of the political insights that he had were, again, just as applicable to today and were sort of beyond or uh, ahead of their time. And oh, yeah. oh, here we have the same thing. You know, Malcolm X is so way ahead of MLK in a sense that, by the way, I think there is a deliberate attempt to suppress my, uh, our memory of Malcolm X, in my opinion, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. While we, uh, it was too real. Yeah, to me, MLK and Malcolm X is the two sides of a one coin, a coin, and yeah. and uh, uh, like 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 you have said, they actually is coming towards one goal and all that. And uh, I think Malcolm X has said very clearly. He's basically said to the black people saying that when you shed your blood, think about why you shed your blood for. He said that the Vietnamese shed their blood for their land. 
Right. The Chinese shared their blood for their land to drive the foreigners out, basically the Westerners, right? right. So, so basically, he said, when you go to Korea to fight for the U.S. government, you sh- shared your uh, blood for whom? And this is profound, you know. He, you know, he talks about uh, Uncle Tom. You know, you look at the uh, Lloyd Austin is a very typical Uncle Tom because uh, he Lloyd Austin will say, "Hey, look at what I'm wearing." You know what's the what you know what what I'm driving, and this yeah. is why he does what the the you know the uh, white majoritarian democracy uh, uh, tells him to do. So he will be you know he will be fit right into what Malcolm X has taught us in the past. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so, and I I I do think you know the emphasis that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and Malcolm X were two sides of the same coin. I I do want to emphasize how I think if if you are truly invested in a project of liberation and in getting it right, in critiquing society in a way that's not just ideological, but is trying to get to the root cause of the problem. If you are doing that, which I believe Malcolm X did, and I believe Martin Luther King Jr. did, you start to see their paths converge towards attacking the same uh, structural issues yep, and absolutely. having very similar critiques, despite the fact that they're from you know, two different religions, that they had two very different methods or ideologies going into it. Yep. Uh, mm. But since they're both invested in the same project, truly invested in it, and they're trying to get it right, you start to see that their answers start to converge and right around the time when both of them are killed. Yep. And during a time where the FBI had a explicit uh, mandate or an explicit goal of preventing the rise of a black messiah uh, because it's a bunch of dumbass, old, dirty motherfuckers who are in there uh, doing all kinds of crazy shit who thought that somehow... Someone saying free at last, free at last, thank God almighty, we're free at last, was an existential threat to the continuation of America. So true. Yep. Which is yep. wild. Because when you think about that, you know, I think the assassination of, of Malcolm X is terrible. But part of me, part of me, this is, sounds weird, but part of me understands why they thought Malcolm X was a, was, was a threat. Because... And Fred Hampton. These are people who are a little more revolutionary, who are a little more explicit with their calls for the appropriateness of violence when when necessary. Um, You can you can almost you can't justify it, but you can almost see how some paranoid uh, government agency would think we have to stop this. But when King is literally just talking about a, a place where black children and white children can hold hands together. And you think that this is such an existential threat to America that he has to be eliminated, yet you don't have the self-awareness to ask yourself if that means that maybe you should rethink what America should be about, or maybe that the indication that this is a threat to your structure, maybe like the, the indication that, okay, this peaceful person may be a threat to my structure is existential enough for you to want to eliminate that threat, but not existential enough for you to ask some questions about the fact that 
peace being a threat to your structure means you should ask questions about your structure. Like that just, it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be like someone, it, 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 that's when you should have some kind of come to Jesus moment of we're fucking up. Like this is what we're doing is not just like immoral, but it's nonsensical. Exactly. Peace itself threatens your society. <laughs> yep. Like that's ridiculous. Like, like, think about it. It's, it's, it's so, it's so, uh, it's just ridiculous. It's, it's nonsensical that that would be the threat. And yet here it was. And I'll read that quote again about the, what was it? The, uh, this was again the FBI that had to say, uh, what, what was his name? So this was um, the head of the domestic intelligence division after being hounded by uh, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, and this is William C. Sullivan. So he was the head of the domestic intelligence division of the FBI at the time, delivered this infamous assessment of the 1963 March on Washington. Quote, I believe in the light of King's powerful demagogic speech yesterday he stands head and shoulders over all other Negro leaders put together when it comes to influencing great masses of Negroes. We must mark him now, if we have not done so before, as the most dangerous Negro of the future in this nation from the standpoint of communism, the Negro and national security. Like, holy shit, dude, someone has lost the plot. For a country that talks about how it's founded on democracy and freedom and equality for all people and minority rights and or well, it was never founded on minority rights but still the idea that like uh, no one can infringe no government can infringe on your right to um you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness like how far have you fallen that that's where you're at right mm-hmm. like, well, it's, I, I, I call it a uh, uh, white majoritarian democracy that's yeah. what American democracy is. It's never been a multiracial uh, uh, democracy. It is always been a white majoritarian democracy. Yeah, and- because it serves the ends of, of capital, right? Like, yeah. if if it keeps those with power maintaining their power, then, again, they'll use extreme militarism, they'll use uh, uh, racism, and... Um, Anything else that they need to use to to maintain their power? I mean, what was it that King says here? He has materialism. Let me see. Um, Yes, here it is. Uh, The giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. And he says, when machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. So you um, know, he's talking yeah. about computers back then already. This is I amazing. Mean, he knows what he's talking about. Like yeah. th- that's like that's. I think that's why reading the speech for me, uh, Peter, was like haunting, almost because it's it's almost like you're in an episode of Black Mirror where we're living through just deja vu over and over and over again. Yeah. And even the, 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 the solutions that are being offered politically about a lot of this shit are the same. It's the same fucking playbook that we've always had. Yes, true. It's the same thing. Like, dude, it's broken. Mm-hmm. It's broken 
what do we have to do to get someone on here who can actually fix it? Mm-hmm. I know Schnapp wanted to join you, so I'm going to hang up. Thank you so much. You're a great topic. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Always a pleasure. And Schnarf, I invited you to speak, too, if you want to uh, come up. But what's going on, Schnarf? How you doing? What's up? Sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> i got to make it a little bit quick. Uh, but two things. So the first thing is definitely look into Judge Joe Brown. So yeah. Judge Joe Brown is now on TV, but he was the judge who was presiding over the – I think it was the um, the appeal for for uh, James Earl Ray, the the assassin of Martin really? Luther King. Yeah, and he determined that the way that King was shot was not, you know, the way they said it was. It was a two man team, and they shot him from a firehouse. It was completely planned, and they used a military grade bullet to kill him. So, whatever's happening in terms of the civil rights museum with that rifle and all yeah. that bullshit that's all song and dance none of that that's happens incredible that they have the rifle at the civil rights museum too is that right it, it, it's incredible that a tv judge is yeah. the one who's that's i when you said it earlier in the chat i was yeah. like I, I, you mean the tv judge like i thought there had yeah, to be the another TV judge, judge joe. i mean joe brown judge it's yeah, like i had, had no like... idea <laughs> like it's I a love that man's mustache that shit is crazy <laughs> Yeah, team and he's skin, not exactly like skin. a um he's not exactly a fun, <laughs> team light skin. <laughs> <laughs> team light skin, yeah, we're sensitive. <laughs> but you know, like his you know, it's crazy because like he's not exactly uh a liberal of any kind. He's pretty a pretty conservative guy from all accounts. So you you, you haven't heard him on okay so he he's he's i would say that he's socially conservative but he is definitely politically different okay. and i think product of the black liberation movement to a degree Interesting. because Interesting. things that he says that all of a sudden you know they they conjure the imagination and they right. bring up some past you know statements that other people have made the second point that i I think that needs to be made is man I you know I'm I'm not so I don't know I'm I'm not I'm not that um passionate when it comes to MLK like I'm I've never been extremely interested I I appreciate his contributions but I've always looked to the more I guess radical um sure. aspects of black liberation as being more interesting but I think the way that that people should look at Martin Luther King is there's a speech by Stokey Carmichael, I believe it's in 1967. And he says that there was a fallacious assumption that Martin Luther King made. And that fallacious assumption was that if he allowed himself to be a punching bag and to let the enemy beat him, that the enemy would realize the error in their weight. And he ends the speech by saying that the United States has no conscience. So it would have never worked. Hmm. And it's a really great speech. So Stokey Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, Kwame Ture I think yeah. has a really interesting take. And I think I think he was he was personally, you know, had a relationship with King as well. He did. At some point. Yeah, he was a chairman of the yeah. student nonviolent uh coordinating yeah, committee. SNCC. SNCC. He was part of SNCC. And he and um 
the Southern Christian Leadership Conference did a lot of joint work. So they were for a long time before SNCC radicalized more and more um, for good reason too, right? Uh, but they were working hand in hand with a lot of this stuff. In fact, Stokely Carmichael at times was like uh, a right hand to King. I don't think it's it's too much to even say that at times, or well, maybe a little too much I, to say a right I, hand. I, but he I was like Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, whatever you want to I like call him. him. I, I yeah. like him a lot, actually. I like him a lot too. Yeah, I think the experience of of King and Malcolm X, their death, their life, their beliefs, become a point of departure for everyone that comes afterwards. Be it Angela Davis, be it Fred Hampton, be yes. it anyone and everyone. Um, that experience is the point of departure for everyone else. And I think it's good that you've gone over Malcolm X and you've gone over Martin Luther King, but I think it's more interesting if you really have the appetite to get into this kind of stuff is to start looking at some of the people that were on the margins earlier, the W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, oh, but the, he, the, I can't classify him as on the margins. He's been in the mix. No, 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 no. They, they're on the, they're on the margins as it relates to, this the because it's it's a the way you I have see to look what you mean. Is, yeah, like they're they're on the margins because they're dead and gone. But I think the people who are dead and gone influence everyone. So, and I think plus like like W. E. B. Du Bois. When you talk about him, he's like a big name, but he was always like he was in and out with the NAACP. Well, he was he's that definitely time a too radical in everyone's career. You know? he, he, yeah, he, he contributes. He's the original OG though. Like as far as. Uh, there's three. There's three of them. There's uh, okay. there's Booker T. Washington. There's right. my least but, favorite, unsavory uh, Jamaican well, he, fellow by the name he, of Marcus Garvey. Yep. And uh, then there's W. E. B. Du Bois, which I think W. E. B. Du Bois is like more along the lines of, I guess, whatever both you and me. Yeah. He, he's much more, more much more like black radicalism, right? And militancy. Much he, more, he but like, also also more on the socialist side. Yes. Garvey was was a hustler garvey yeah. was was yeah. also extremely religious and i don't know it's just <clears throat> dubois speaks more to me at least yeah but it's cool that you're definitely doing this i think this is this is a good direction yeah man i'd love to do like an episode where um we're talking about someone who's more on the margins especially i i, I do think more people should know about kwame Touré, and he he doesn't really get brought up very much. Every time he gets brought up, it's Stokely Carmichael, which is fine. I mean, like that was also his name at some point. But like, uh, it's I don't think he gets brought up enough for for some of his revolutionary um, ideas. His emphasis on like the the um, what was it the Pan African movement? But there was like a something African party that he was a part of too. Um, yeah, he he was in. Uh... I think he was first in Ghana and then he was in yeah. uh, Equilateral Guinea. I think that's where he went. I don't. I'm not sure. I gotta check. I gotta see that. But yeah. but I think I think these ideas all they 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 coincide with each other, right? So sure. they, they they lead to where we are, and then the 1980s happens, and there's kind of a. It's kind of there's two things that happen, I guess. There's there's like you said, black faces and high places and crack, mm -hmm. and those two things destabilize everything. Crack, rock, crack, rock. Yeah, it did. And cool. I mean, th there's a whole episode of uh, 
the CIA's involvement with funneling crack to the communities too, that we could talk about yeah, as well. It, it's fu- it's funny because I think, I think the crack strategy worked better than COINTELPRO. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it definitely well, it did. did. I mean, look at Huey P, look at Huey Newton, man. You know, like <laughs> Huey Newton is my favorite, probably my favorite revolutionary or my favorite like thinker of all. I of, like, like him as a person, his ideas. I could, I could tweak. His ideas, I, I, some of his ideas don't sure. don't rub me the wrong the right way. Um, I just I like the idea. Well, we've talked about before. I like the revolutionary suicide, but I also like the idea of all power to all people, like all power to the people, like that idea of understanding the need for power to actually affect your material conditions, and how part of a revolutionary movement has to be about actively. Uh, uh, being able to, or not being uh, afraid, not necessarily of taking power, but of of uh, getting the power to have power over your own lives. And I think he he has a better way of saying that. Um, it's almost like a Nietzschean. It's like a a a, a mix between like Nietzsche and uh, uh, I don't know something less brutal. I guess like I don't want to say like a Christian whatever, but like a uh, like a a Nietzsche with like community love as the uh, the end goal or the I I gotta I I'm not sure I have to I have to go back and look through that to see what you're talking about. But the the point of departure for me with Fred Hampton I'm not Fred Hampton with um yeah. Huey, Huey Newton. Newton is this is that he talks about combating capitalism with black capitalism. And yeah, that's true. I that that's where I leave. Uh, but the funny part is that the Panthers never had a cohesive ideology, meaning that they, you know, in their ranks, you had everything. It wasn't it wasn't they didn't work it out. And I think there was someone that was talking about actually Kwame Ture was talking about that. And um, there's a lady, another lady also they brought it up that there was a lot of the Panthers was, you know, a lot of the stuff that they were doing right. became more performative. Um, it became yeah, like yeah. like a resistance play, and and those resistance plays took away from actually coming up with uh, a platform or policy and and engaging and you know doubling down on what they did well, and it became more of a spectacle. And the yeah. spectacle is what also was inflaming the state. So they were gaining notoriety while at the same time they were hurting their actual concrete. Uh, progress track so right. to speak right and then you know they had infighting eldridge creek cleaver and huey p newton didn't get along right. and I, I, you know they had their own problems and, but i think and that was inflamed too for now there's yeah. a lot of lessons that can be taken from that yeah and I, I don't think we we do a good job of that but you know i there was i was actually <laughs> i saw something that kind of made me made me chuckle i was on instagram and I was uh, scrolling, and then there was some Brooklyn Institute that uh, that popped up, and it was talking about uh, a $350 course for learning anti-imperialist ideas. And I thought to myself, you can get all this for free on the internet. You don't need a course. And I feel like that's what really needs to happen in this forum. We need to, we need to give like, and I think you're doing a good job with bringing these speeches up because that's exactly what they do, but they charge three fifty for it. 
Right. And I think this is a great way of getting out ideas. So I don't know who you want to do next week or, or the week after that, but I think, you know, I think it definitely pays to focus on the ideas of, of, of these individuals that have made these contributions because the only way to get ahead is to stand on their shoulders. Yeah, I, I think so. Because like my, my philosophy with a lot of this stuff, first of all, thank you for the compliment. Holy shit. Uh, I got a compliment for Schnarf, everybody. Uh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm getting soft. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm but yeah, gonna, yeah. I, uh, I can give a compliment. You know, I, I recognize when, when yeah, someone's do. doing yeah. something decent, you know, like I, I, I like when I like something, I like something. Yeah. Um, thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, but I, I, I really, I really hate the $350 course from the Brooklyn Institute or whatever the fuck it's called. Yeah. I, I think the monetization, well, the, making everything a fucking commodity is just dangerous because the people who are going to resonate the most with this message are those who probably cannot even afford to put up the $350 to be in this class in the first place. And they're the ones who are going to have the most insight into where we go from here and how you actually navigate around these issues because they, they live them. And I, I, I see it kind of like the, the way you build any kind of solidarity movement, which is, um, you know, Rika talked about it with me on the union episode or the union episodes. Oh. You have to power map it. And I'm, there are going to be people. If look, you're building a wide solidarity mass movement. There are going to be people that you are not the best messenger for them or to them. Uh, or you, oh, shit. There there's are a people, lot of people that shouldn't talk to me, <laughs> there's a, well, there, but there's a lot of people that you can talk to that other people just could not talk to in the same way. And you can, you, you are able to explain concepts, some of them, which are like a lot of them, which can be very heady and like fucking, uh, academic concepts to people in a way that they can understand them. And to certain people who will hear that and resonate with the message and then, join into the mass movement like the idea that it's going to be any one leader any one method yeah, it's, or anyone i don't, I don't believe that's you know, the way uh there's no there's no, is, there's no silver silly. bullet or panacea or anything like that here right right so i you know my goal with with just what i do here besides the fact i just like doing it and sometimes i just get on here and talk some dumb <laughs> shit about morgan freeman or whatever and that's fun too you know like that's fun we still gotta have fun and i gotta have fun whatever but my 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 whole goal with a lot of this stuff is to to really to the extent that I'm good at researching or I'm I know I have an academic background where I can go into some of this stuff is to do that provide information for people but then also to make a match between like practice and praxis like that's where we really need to be we need there it can't just be all um you know and now you know about Martin Luther King Jr it's like, well, what were the strategies that he was insisting upon when he died? And are those still things that we can use now? I, I think a practical sort of getting 2,000 people together, demanding, a, 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 you know, stopping businesses and demanding um, a federal jobs program is a good idea. I think asking someone for, uh, you know, or not even asking, but like demands for legislation, which create a federal jobs program that rebuild ghettos is a good idea. Like that's, that's the kind of shit that I'm talking about. And, and you know, when people have already done all of that work for you, 
which is really what human beings are here for, right? In a, in a, in a large sense is that every single thing that we do on this planet at this point, for the most part, besides like shit and eat, and even that to some extent is, but it's on the shoulders of those who came before us. As a species, that is really kind of our superpower is we, we come up with new inventions, we come up with new scientific formulas, we come up with different philosophies, whatever, that like people think of during their lifetimes and they get passed on. And the group that is currently here has a lot less work to do because so much foundation has been laid. Like, Imagine trying to just come up with mathematics just from scratch right now, but we don't, we don't need to do that. Other people, I mean, we could still, we have to come up with the next equations for whatever, but uh, the Arabic numeral system came up with a, a really good way to keep track of numbers. You had, uh, you know, Greeks who were coming up with um, uh, the Pythagorean theorem or whatever in order to, to understand how to measure the area of a triangle. Well, the Arabic Which numerals, one? they're they're great, but the, the one numeral that didn't exist that came from India is the zero. Zero is the, one of the most important contributions. Oh, that like, really? I didn't know the, that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. But see, that's well, exactly it's cultural diffusion. Like it's cultural diffusion. And I think problem. I think our society yeah. now is so embedded in the idea of intellectual property that that kind of innovation and building on things only comes about if you pay a royalty to somebody and it's it, it or or you you start something completely alien and different which is basically building from scratch and yeah. every idea belongs to some kind of a corporate entity that's another problem altogether and i think it's true with mlk too i mean mlk's image yeah. in itself is has been commodified beyond belief i mean everything about mlk speaks to a method of selling or production, which really stinks because that's yeah. not, I don't think that's what he was about. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it was what he was about either. And I think, I don't know. You, you, do, do you know who Aaron Schwartz was? It just something you said reminded me of Aaron no. Schwartz. Who's Aaron Schwartz? When you're talking about how, I don't know, just like, so Aaron Schwartz was like a um, computer programmer and one of the co-founders of okay, the website, yeah, I do know Reddit, what you're talking about. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, or he's credited with co-founding it. Yeah. Well, he, he, um, very kind of open information guy was very big into mm -hmm. like net neutrality. If you remember when that was a big thing, um, he was one of the biggest proponents of that, which was for those of you who don't know, net neutrality is basically... And also uh, keeping they can, the they can internet speed, the, service, the speed at which you, you connect to different premium, websites, which means uh, that if you have the premium, consistent across all different websites, so that things. Uh, if you have the uh, standard, internet service don't. provider yeah, cannot prioritize certain websites over others. So guess who? Uh, you can imagine a world where if Verizon, uh, Comcast, Comcast the same is the only internet in town, they can partner with a bunch of different companies to make their websites load faster and the other websites not come up at all. Uh, unless they pay a fee. Is it the SEC or the FTC? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The Federal Trade Commission. Exactly. So, yes, the SEC would only get involved about, uh, would, would only be involved in, 
and yeah, and their yeah, exactly. stock and shit. But here's the interesting thing because I used to right, work right. for a lot of them um, are. Although I work um, for one of the very large uh, cable companies. Was right? it the SEC and, right and now? The, and Lena the rumor Khan and the rumor that always doing was going some shit I really like. like. This company would um, merge with what, Verizon. What, what, no, the FTC. She's which, on the FTC. To which I turned around and she's on the FTC right now. Antitrust that. She's and everyone was like, yeah, she's she's actually. I've been really impressed. These two companies together because. You know, they have a whole hegemony over the entire market, right? right? Well, right, right. Nobody, nobody cared. That's that was their goal. They were they were excited about it. And if you think about it, right, like both Comcast, uh -huh. um, which is Xfinity, and Spectrum, which is Charter, both of them private. They mm -hmm. do, uh, they do. Uh, what is it called? Oh, fuck, man. They private label Verizon's uh, yeah. network and and sell mobile phones, right? Yeah. Cable companies only have. Four, four offerings. They have voice, yeah. they, which is like your phone, your landline, which who the fuck uses that? Um, TV and internet. And then the, the, the only other offering they have yep. is mobile, which is the, which is the private, private labeled Verizon CDMA network. So when you, when you see Xfinity mobile, it's really just Verizon's network. Oh, it's not even shell companies. They, they're just they, they, they what they what they're able to get away with because they sit on the um, on the FCC, right? So they get away with all of this shit. And all of this happened mm. under Reagan, by the way. Which, by the way, we should do like a someone should do a Reagan episode where we all we do is talk about all the fucking horrible shit. Yeah, this man you know, did. like in, these, in these different kind of fucking brought uh, grief to the shell country. companies and affiliated companies and that are used that to. Yeah. 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 Man, I'm just going to be yelling. It was really bad. He fucked up a lot of shit. He really did. Like, no, like, it, we could talk about the AIDS crisis alone. And it's it's incredible that he's telling the the um what's the motherfucking well, AIDS, uh, the CDC AIDS, AIDS and HIV he's telling the CDC at once, the time once it literally being, while this crisis it was an, it was is about to spin out of control he looks at the CDC and goes well class. you know and um, it, it didn't it didn't live in a uh, look pretty kind of world right or that's do true nothing everything. and look as pretty as possible I mean, that's even true or something COVID. Like that. if there was if there was a, if COVID it's like, was more democratic you you're the like, fucking like the president dude league. and just because he we would have like gotten the fact the that it's all these okay well we would have it's these gay guys they the vaccines and like everyone would have and that's not even going into what the policy shit that he was doing yeah 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 But that's fucked up. It's so like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the biggest reasons why COVID went the way it did too, though, is because as it was affecting potentially the bottom line of companies and their profits. And now that there's a stay at home order, now they're like, all right, fucking fix this. And suddenly, within months, we have a vaccine, mm -hmm. which is insane. But you can see that our institutions 
are right. capable of doing things very quickly. It's just only when Lexus it serves Nexus. the ends of, 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 of profits and the like. And I, you know, with Aaron Swartz, before I, I forget about him, um, you know, he, one of the things that he did was he tried to go on, a, I think it was JSTOR or like Hein Online or one of these um, online sort of uh, access websites where mm. they, they, co- they kind of collect all the academic journals, right? Uh, lawyers use like Westlaw and, and Lexis and those programs. Yeah. Lexis Nexus. And those allow us to go online and, uh, look, uh, it's a huge database of every case that's ever been published really. So whenever we're doing our legal research and everything, we got to go to that special like online library and access all that. So JSTOR, I think it was JSTOR. They, they do this for like academic journals. So all of that, you know, research, like fucking research papers published across the hundreds of different magazines that are out there um, and and trade journals that are out there. Very important stuff. Like knowing this information only helps us progress quicker. It's, it's an artificial barrier that people uh, cannot access studies without payment. So what he did is he went and started downloading the entire library of JSTOR so he could release it for free. And he was brought up on federal charges. Uh, he was told he was going to go to jail for, I don't know, like 35 years. I, I think that's or, not or what his crime 40 is. years or his something like that. His crime is for... And is, is violating... Again, his crime the, the is downloading papers. Intellectual property. Is. Not even for people, for everybody. And yeah, he, IP is a lot bigger than people like to... like. I, I think IP is something that is... Has replaced it. Well, it's it's a lot like well, sure. property. That's right? it. Like it's a lot That's like exactly actual physical is. property. So the minute you 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 infringe on it, the government's going to go crazy on you. And I think I think besides decommodifying healthcare, besides yeah. taxing hoarded land, we need to have an intellectual property strategy that yeah. attracts yeah. the definition. Of, that's what they did. Of what they went crazy these on infringements it. are because right now we're taking big business aside. Everything has been everything has been copyrighted and patented. Everything, from the happy birthday song to you know e- even the most revolutionary of writings. Yeah, yeah. It was literally patented. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean. They brought Aaron up on charges, and he ended up killing himself in prison at, at or well, before he was went to prison. Um, and he was only twenty six, you know, and he was one of the the most important voices on how society and information, or, or how society should handle information, and how we can make it accessible and available to everyone. And um, you know, I think. With the Vietnam speech, or you know, beyond Vietnam, when King is talking about how going to war is something that America is doing to protect its profit incentives, to protect profit interests, and the like, I think that's something to uh, we should really be paying attention to because it's happening not just overseas; it's happening here. When when someone's life is worth less to you than protecting the intellectual property of 
I don't know, some journal so that they can make their money. I think that's a fucking, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge problem. Huge problem. Um, Andrew, what's going on, man? Long time no talk. Welcome to the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. Go ahead and unmute yourself. What's up, dudes? Yeah, just chilling. Right on. Yeah, I, uh, hey, man, I don't come around for lack of missing you, bud. I've just been busy. <laughs> yeah, I figured. I figured you just, um, uh, life, life and stuff gets busy at times, so no worries. Oh, yeah. Should have some fucking cool shit to talk about from all the busyness I've been doing in like four to six months, though, so. Hold your breath. But um, okay, yeah. I was gonna say um, I came in like really late. Don't know the full context, but yeah, definitely always down to talk property rights. <clears throat> there's um, there's an interesting part of Mexican law around land that still dates back to the Mexican Revolution, where. Um, Basically, Mexico is fairly well known for under their second president, Vicente Guerrero, who was a black man. They finalized the process of um, de facto ending chattel and racialized slavery. It was then codified in 1833 in the Constitution, I think, with an amendment through the Congress. And then the Mexican Revolution took place almost exactly 100 years after the Mexican War of Independence. And if you ask people, they'll say that it's also because they were trying to end de facto slavery, meaning that people were still slaves to the hacienda owners who owned absolutely all of the land and paid, you know, whatever they said, sometimes nothing to people who, you know, they they're, they basically like in all of colonialism and imperialism came into a society that had a communal form of land management and claimed ownership of it and then charged the descendants of the people who made that land viable. And at the end of the Mexican revolution, when the majority of the Hacienda owners had been hanged, pretty fucking cool or shot, whatever, crazy, you know, complicated, numerous factions in the Mexican revolution, but the the majority of the people fighting were not fighting for control of the government. And that includes Zapata, Poncho Villa, all the uh, Abelitas and everyone else. Like they all wanted land. And so once they had done what they needed to do to break up the Hacienda system, they split it up amongst everybody's families who was in the, um, you know, the struggle for liberation. And the thing is, though, they didn't just break it up into private property that process has taken a lot longer time and is still not complete in Mexico because there are still what are called bienes comunales. And basically bienes comunales are like people's councils of descendants of people who fought in the Mexican American war or not the Mexican American war, sorry, the Mexican uh, revolution. And they allow basic rights for everybody on the land to, to, to exercise, even if they're walking over what is, you know, on the map, they designated this land as for this family. And it's getting, you know, it's gotten fragmented as the population has grown. But in most of the rural areas, there's still Bienes Comunales where you're allowed to graze sheep, pick medicinal and edible plants, um, access water, all sorts of things. And hmm. it makes for a very interesting experience in the rural areas. There's 
But it is, like I said, it has been slowly fragmented in some places much more than others. And in some places, they're still pretty much totally intact. But the Bienes Comunales can can decide to release a parcel of land from the Bienes Comunales for somebody to sell as like uh, modern private property. And so that is, you know, one way because the land's value has never gone down since the um, revolution. It's always gone up. It's going to keep going up. So some right. people... When their the entire rest of their financial situation is weak, they end up needing to sell land and break it away from these, like collective property or collective. It's it's not like all collective property, but you have rights over all of the land uh, in the Bienes Comunales, which is a huge portion of um, Mexico's rural area, and it's also where you know a giant proportion majority of the uh, agriculture is done. Also, that so- whistle. Yeah. Can you hear it? Yeah, it's cool. It's um it's a camote cart. So this guy's going around, he's got this cart with like a little fireplace in the bottom of it and then like a little metal barrel that opens up and he's cooking sweet potatoes and bananas in there and then the steam oh, fr- and smoke yeah. gets li- lit out of a little thing when he pulls the handle. Oh my god, out. for real? Yeah, it's that the best is ever. so cool, dude. <laughs> He's like a little steam engine of deliciousness just walking yeah. around in his cart. Oh, my yeah. God. A little tea kettle of just treats. Dude, Tomas, <laughs> the treat engine, dog. That's oh, my God. I love it. That's sick. But, yo, with the with with this, um, uh, I forget the name of the, the collective land, the, the rights to the land. Do you know if they are? It sounds like they have collective sort of use rights yes. to the land. Yes. Okay, so using it, so it's almost like an easement. Like, uh, but yeah. it depends. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm just thinking about it in property law, um, from a property law Yeah, in law the U.S. context, it's, it's kind of like a de facto everywhere has an easement for everyone to graze livestock, use water, um, you know, okay. harvest traditional foods and medicines, et cetera, which I think is pretty dope. Like when you're in the rural area, especially like where people kind of know, I mean, I still stick out. Right. But mm-hmm. like where I'm, when I'm where my family lives, I can just like fucking walk anywhere. Like we walked up uh, some months ago in like June when these type of like, they're related to cherries. They're really good. They're called uh, capulines. Hmm. We just walked up this big hill to where all these farm pastures are and there's like one house up there but it's mostly farm no but none of us own any of the land up there and we went with like big tarps and buck buckets and ropes and machetes and we just like shook the hell out of these trees while we're holding the tarps out and got like probably 25 pounds of these really good sort of cherries Holy it's shit. like That's just, nobody say anything about that it's just yeah everybody should use what is there and in the the opposite context is like in urban areas or or in rural areas where there's just not like a focus on agriculture not enough labor there's just like fruit and veggies rotting on the ground yeah yeah i mean i i i think part of part of what's kind of driven me further and further to um i guess what you'd call more leftist politics are is really just the 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 contradiction that I cannot help but see between how able we are really to produce enough to sustain everybody and how unwilling we seem to be to actually make that choice. 
Um, it's weird that starvation is still a thing, you know, like when I was a kid, you would hear people, you know, whenever someone would ask you, oh, uh, if you had a genie and you can only make one wish, what would you want to do? Or if there was like someone on Miss America or some kind of game show and they're like, what do you want to do? Like, what would you do to make the world a better place? One of the go-to answers was end world hunger, end world hunger, end world hunger. And it's this, it becomes harder and harder to see, especially when you give the city example, when there's just food on the ground or food in the dumpsters or where, where it's not a production problem, it's a distribution problem. It becomes harder and harder to sort of square that circle, to justify that political system and that economic system that has police officers who will literally arrest you if you take food out of a dumpster behind a Panera Bread or uh, I don't want to just put Panera Bread on, on blast, but behind, you know, like a grocery store. They'll arrest you for the food that they threw away for going to eat it. And the idea that like you can own a whole bunch of the idea of owning property like land generally the idea of owning land is very weird i know we're all used to it in america because that's just what we've been brought up on but like it's it's a weird concept because it's like i own this plot of the entire planet of earth and if you come onto this land i can do with you what i will treat you as an enemy as an invader yeah, like, or if I want to like completely ruin it, I'm gonna go ahead and do it, and y'all can um, shove it. Yeah, exactly. This this idea that you unilaterally now have this ability to just do what you will with it. I mean, everyone, there's a story, and I'm gonna butcher it, but I'm sure you've all heard a version of it. But like, um, the land in either New York or one of these states, the, the there was a local sort of indigenous tribe that was contracting with the settlers there and they sold the land for, I don't know, something like 10 bucks or some like a hundred dollars. It wasn't very much. That was the idea, right? Like, Oh, they, they sold us land that was, uh, or they sold land like a whole state for something that was really cheap, right? Pennies. And the idea was that, Oh, look how stupid these indigenous people are because they sold land for not even knowing the value of it. But if you look at it from the other standpoint, the people, the indigenous people sold the land are like, we just fucking scammed these motherfuckers, man. Like, what the fuck do they mean buy land? You can't buy land. You can't own land. So we just got some shit. We, we thought we were fleecing them. And that's like, I don't know. I just, I, I, I think that is a, um, I kind of, the older I get, the more I'm agreeing with that idea. The more I think, you know, the, the, well, it's certainly true at this point, as it was when MLK was giving the speech, that our system values the protection of profits and property over people. I mean, just the other day, there was a whole, um, some kid, some like 13-year-old kid who was trying to get into a car. Um, some say he was trying to break into it, but some guy who it wasn't even his car was watching this kid try to get into it and shot him and killed him. 
Yeah, I mean, like, if I, if no one's around and um, I want to, I can just kill anyone and say I thought they were trying to steal something. Because that, no, that car thing. wasn't that guy's property, even. But, yeah, and, and I mean, the, yeah, to the, the, the idea that, like... Sorry, go ahead. Even if it was his property, the idea that you could just kill someone for trying to get into a car, to trying to steal your car. Yeah. Or say they, say they successfully steal your car. Like, if if the police were at all competent, or if there was another organization that was competent that was supposed to do, you know, good community protection type of stuff, you can just find it later after they're not driving it. <laughs> like, the, the other exactly. thing is... Um, <laughs> The high-speed chases. I don't know. Uh, I just saw RBN yeah, cover a high-speed chase that yep. the cops killed some, like, completely unrelated people to the situation mm-hmm. and then charged the guy they were chasing with it. Mm-hmm. And um, a really yep. similar thing happened near my neighborhood in Seattle some years ago where this kid, like, was – I don't think he had even stolen a car. I can't remember what had happened, but the police were chasing him. Because they fucking love to pretend that they're in Fast and Furious and, you know, it gives them a false sense of meaning in their lives. And they chase this kid down this really busy street that comes out of, like, the industrial part of, like, south of downtown uh, up into some suburbs. And this kid, like, going around a corner just, like, crashed into the... Um, there were just, there's like these big, uh, concrete blocks there. There's like a forest. So he just hit whatever was on the edge there and died pretty much, you know, I think he was pronounced dead at the hospital, but yeah, it was not a survivable incident. And there's just like, there's absolutely nothing logical about that unless you have, um, been infected by like a religion where you, you've been told that that's okay. But there's, yeah. you know, there, th- like I think Brianna made the best point on uh, Rising the other day is that the, the, the actual legal penalty that exists for that crime is not death. And so exactly. to say that it is justified, um, even, even without a moral stance, you would need to change the laws to say the penalty for stealing a car or for evading the police in your own vehicle should be death. Otherwise, it completely does not compute. Absolutely. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah.
Yeah. It's definitely advertised that way too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's it. The the police are a mechanism to protect property. And it's as you said, Sharf, the, the idea of um, who is worthy of protection is directly related to uh, how much property they have accumulated. And part of the reason we have this, I, this, this conflation between uh, sort of the accumulation of property and freedom is because the people that we see who are able to exercise the most agency over their own lives have uh, are able to do so as a result of what they've accumulated. Because everything that they have to do, or every, you know, every aspect of enjoying your freedom, is a transaction, and that is a bastardization of the concept of freedom as well, right? Like we should be able to walk so who, places. So who would you say? Or who would you say are the top? I, who would you say are the top, let's say, three groups in the United States who are oppressed? And if I guarantee if we look at them, we'll see an encroachment of the same ideology starting to creep into the culture. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and I think that's I think that's a tragedy of of both Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the civil rights era, and then the the power movements, be it the Chicana power movement, the native uh, power movement and the black power movement is that they, they didn't, they weren't able to prevent the co-opting and manipulation of culture that ultimately led to what we have, right? Yeah. We have a highly material society based on the possession of things and the ability to accumulate. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 it it's t- it's a tough i mean it's a tough issue Schnarf, because the the truth is that when every part of your society is centered around that then we only have so many resources and so much ability to counter that right now which is why when people talk about revolution education 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 is such a big part of it and why it has to be is because you need you need to see how you are being manipulated. You need to have some insight into it. And the, I guess the advantage that we will always have when it comes to understanding how you've been manipulated is even if you buy a bunch of shit and you have a bunch of stuff, the, or even if you, if you don't, don't even have that much money and you're trying to look cool or have this or that, the conditions on the ground are the conditions on the ground. And those are created by the structural inequities and the structural oppression that continues to be perpetrated on all of us, on so many people in this country. So those conditions do not change. So you can get a Gucci, I don't know, like a fucking flip-flop or whatever the hell is, whatever the lyric is, but you're still walking on glass in a slum neighborhood where people are cracked out on the streets. Well, that's the, that's the you point, know? right? That's the point. One of, one of the biggest jokes that that, that, that actually exists is you know you know the the burberry checkered shirt um i don't know if it you know what i'm talking know. about that stereotypical uh it's like a tan uh plaid burberry shirt 
no. Everybody, everybody aspires to own at least one of these shirts. And they, they it's a status symbol. And, and nobody, nobody who struggles to kill themselves to get a, a Louis Vuitton belt, all of these things has anything to show for their lives. They work all their lives, and the only thing they can show for it is the car they own, the clothes they wear, the shoes on their feet, yeah, and the gold that they have around their neck and in their mouth. Yeah, and 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 that's sad. The, and the person, that, the reason they and, want that shirt is because the person who has the kind of freedom and the kind of agency that they want to have and express is wearing that shirt is showing, you know, it's, I, I, it's a little it, bit, it's like the little, fake it till you make it think, kind of thing. They reinforce each other. Right. I, I think it's even, I think it's even more there's um, I think Jonathan said this and, and it kind of stuck with me, but what I think it is, is a fun house mirror that's held up to white culture. And then these excesses and these kinds of, um, I don't know, extravagant holdings are a way to compensate for not feeling like a person. See, the, I, I think, I think what's different is that, and this is, this is again, me and my, my, my reading of Fanon, mm -hmm. again, which is creeps into everything I do. There's a kind of lack of personhood that exists in, in people who are disenfranchised. Mm. They don't feel like they're a complete person. Mm. And that void becomes a place where they where they funnel their material possessions, and those material possessions then define them in a, in a new light as a as a person, right? Which is can I get your guys? We say let's kill Jay Z and Beyonce. Yeah. yeah. Wait, let me. Can I get your guys's take on on just a question or an observation about that exact phenomenon? Yeah. Which is, um, you know, we have to for this question maybe put aside or at least say how much do we value polls how much do they really tell us um but i think which that poll honestly, are you talking the, about are you talking well i'm gonna i'm gonna reference a poll in a, in a second no he's talking about no, the, I'm, I'm, the I'm polish people poll in a he's second. talking about the polish people he's yeah nobody cares about them and they're no okay, <laughs> no. Um, okay <laughs> The um, the poll I'm talking about is that the uh, out of all of the ethnic groups in the United States that are, you know, generally identified in polling or on fucking applications for shit, um, black Americans were the highest, uh, the most likely to say that they are they have a favorable view of socialism, which poll in that poll was expressed at 60 percent. By their statistical analysis of Black America, have a favorable view of socialism, but the kind of like grind culture Black capitalists, um, you know, even if we say they are the whole entire other forty percent, um, I think they only appear. It only appears like that's actually a dominant cultural force in the grassroots of America because it is promoted so heavily. Jay Z and Beyonce and Obama are exactly what the ruling class would like black Americans to aspire to. It's also what they would like every other type of American to aspire to, which is that push everybody else out of your way and accumulate material possessions. Yeah. And that in that way you will be rewarded uh, by society to make you think that you have done a worthwhile thing. You're a worthy human being. And I think that, um, you know, like you can have a, a society that's run by a small minority. I mean, we've seen 
many examples of it all across the world. I would argue the United States is run by a very small minority. So the, the, the hard question is how to make anything useful out of that and not come across as like a pretentious condescending fuck. If you're just like every black person you talk to, you're trying to film them saying socialism is good. They're going to immediately think, well, yeah, this is probably not going to turn out well for me (laughs) and just not engage. But like, what do you guys think of that particular poll? What do you think about the cultural phenomenon of like, um, grind culture in general, or if you want to wade into like, you know, the marketing of black excellence rather than solidarity. Anyway, take it whatever, whichever direction from there. I mean, Schnarf, you want to go first? I, I know I, I got some things to say, but. Stop. <laughs> Fucking Schnarf, stop. <laughs> Oh, stop. <laughs> mm. Well, I, it, 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 I'll, I'll defend it a little bit because, you know, I see it a lot when it's like someone just graduated with their PhD or someone just came out of med school or someone just came out of like, you know, like, uh, you know, whatever, like something like that. And someone says black excellence, part of me is like, all right, yay, celebrate, you know, celebrate people, encourage them, get them going. Uh, these are spaces that we were traditionally kept out of and showing that we have that ability, showing that we are able to do the thing and succeed. I think, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. That's cool. People need to have wins. Yes. And, but that, that's the key. That's the key. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, at least at least we got out of debt. <laughs> That's so dark, man. But you're right. You're right. I mean, like, um, the, the only thing I'll add, man, I'm, uh, is mm-hmm. listening to what, you know, church talk. The five, the five percenters mm-hmm. and everybody else that's on the fringe. I think that's the differentiating mark here, mm-hmm. right? And I think what we have to do is, and this is, it goes back to MLK. I am not a fan of the black church. Mm. I'm not. And even W.E.B. Du Bois says that the, the beginnings of liberation for black America start in the black church. Angela Davis says the same thing. I disagree with all of them. Why so? I, I, I have an inkling. I mean, I can two, two I can make reasons. an argument for two why reasons. that is. I'll give you two part reasons. of me tends to agree. Yeah. Okay. Theoretical to Christianity, hmm. animism, paganism, whatever you want to call it, always fell for Christianity. 
but there was a competing force, a competing narrative. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to double down and say the Islamic narrative is the greatest narrative ever, but it was contrary to the Christian narrative. And it looked at the Christian narrative as a hypocrisy. So it empowered people to say, hey, guess what? Those missionaries, we're going to go get them tonight. We're going to cut off their heads and we're going to say, oh, shit, what happened to them? That is one reason. The second reason is during the triangle trade, the first. I don't have much to say against that, honestly. I mean, the only thing I would say is, well, well, I, 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 I'll say this. No, he said against. He said he has almost nothing to disagree. Yeah, I think that's right. I, the one thing I will say is that um, it's kind of what my my one of the reasons why I haven't given up. Well, I I don't really look at spirituality or the black church or any church really as a potent political force. But I do think that it is a place oftentimes and has been a place for black people in America where the, the idea of something, is put into you. And then also the idea of, um, of impossible things being possible, of miracles being possible, I think, to some extent is a useful tool to sort of trick someone's brain into going after a goal that they would have not gone after had they thought it was impossible. Right? I think the idea of enough people going up against what they view as impossible odds and continuing to do it anyway, a force that can push you to do that is at times very useful. And I think you got a lot of that through black churches in particular, because the circumstances where uh, people were worshiping uh, or the circumstances under which they were worshiping were so uh, horrific that that space for them allowed them to get that mindset. So I, I think that's my only, that's the only thing I'll add, which is, again, that doesn't really, um, that doesn't take anything away from the points you're making, because I think all the points you're making are completely valid. But I do think that's probably why we see that birth of things. And it's also why I think when you see writers like James Baldwin or people who end up, um, you know, leaving the church later, still have some kind of almost um, affinity towards it, because I think they can trace their uh, sort of radical or intellectual roots back to it in some way, shape, or form, to that spirit of something greater. I think you're right. Of course, yeah. Well, well it, it, the, the, yeah.
Yeah, look, I tend to agree with all of that. I will say that one, the the um, the savior narrative is definitely something that we're doing within America, and people kind of plugging themselves into I'm doing the right thing because I have the right religion, and that justifies everything I do here. That's obviously a huge problem, and it, it the magical thinking off also a huge problem. Uh, the negation of facts. So, what do you think about the role of the black church? What do you think about the role of black churches? as it relates to allowing the the people that came in and pandered to the to the yes of course of course i'm not going to i i'm not going to say and how many broke defend. pastors do you know well that's the, <laughs> that's the thing that i'm i'm most i most hate about churches in general honestly is the profit motive is They've fallen just as into the 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 uh, hands of capitalism as everyone else, and they do it almost worse um, because they're not even selling anything. They're just selling a prayer. But I do think, again, religion is an interesting topic because it's something that has been developed in every society. And I think it's more, a lot of the times, it's more of a reflection on our existential dread of the unknown and the inevitability of death. I'll say this, you know, like um, I grew up religious. I still consider myself uh, an Episcopalian too, uh, even though I'm not, I'm not a very good Christian. Um, well, I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm okay. Um, but the, this idea, I, I don't tend to believe a lot of the miracles or any of that stuff. I don't think, I don't think any of that's super important, but um you know, this, this, it's, it's hard, it's hard to explain. It, it, it's, it's, I'll put it this way. Um, with. You're going to have to do a lot of soul searching. You said what? You're going to have to do a lot of soul oh, searching. Oh, for sure. No, I, like if you asked me like. And then, and then at the very end, you're going to be faced with two choices. You're going to say, why am I holding on to this? And do I need? Well, that's the thing is I don't I don't think either of those things, right? Like I, I I don't think it's I don't think I need it. I don't think I'm holding on to it. Um, at this point, it's more out of like tradition, and that doesn't mean anything. Like whether or not I'm like adhering to it or whatever, it's like it's 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 remote to the point that I'm I'm trying to make here, which is I think that initially when I basically came to this idea that like, well, I guess I'm just more agnostic or um, whatever. Now uh, I don't believe in the Bible, literally like any of it, like from a literal standpoint, I do like, maybe I'll do a story or uh, an episode on why I like the Jesus story so much, because I think, I think that's kind of like a radical way to live your politics in a way. I see that as revolutionary suicide, but regardless what I will say is a lot of people, uh, when they have nothing else, without proper education, without a proper means to actually process society, when all they have is religion, that there's a way that that magical thinking can sometimes be the only thing keeping someone here. And that is, uh, I don't think that makes it the most ideal method for doing that. I think you're correct in everything you said about uh, both how it's harmful and then also how 
magical thinking generally is, is can lead to a lot of really bad outcomes. But that being said, I think, I guess I, I am still trying to figure out what the utility of it is or what to do to replace the utility where it may be needed. If that makes any sense. I think we're going back to the same, we're going back to the same thing that we, we tend to always collide back into, which is identity. Yeah. Right? How, like, how important is identity and liberation? Not, like th think about the idea of it's not identity and liberation. It's identity in life. Right. I mean, you, you know, more of my philosophy is too, and Peter, I'll bring it up in, in just a bit, but you know, more of my philosophy with even confronting death has been like the, the contributions of human of humanity are really not about individual sort of uh, excellence. It's about what we can create to make this world better for the next generation that comes after us, because that is ultimately how, if you're looking for eternal life, that's what it is. It's this it continued sort of reinvestment in our ability to learn, to grow, to develop new sciences, to develop new arts, to to uh, go to places where, as far as we know, no other organism has been able to do. Like that's that's what is worthwhile. Like, Star like Trek. I'm serious though. Like there's that's what's so fucking cool about Star Trek. But it's such a cool idea that like we're still you know if if we do get to Star Trek level, at some point or another, they'll still be using parts of our math, parts of our understanding of like research we've done in space and the effects on the human body and how to handle anti-gravity and whatever, like all of this stuff is still going to be useful. And this is like architecture and design and engineering and all of this stuff that we've done from way before is still going to be a reason for why uh, human beings will be able to succeed and live in the future. And that I I think is beautiful. I think even the idea that like, even that in the grand scheme of things, okay, you have the heat death of the universe and everything goes to black. But like the idea of just this thing that was a monkey, you know, started off as like an amoeba or whatever, not even like an amoeba, like single celled organisms through by some fucking crazy billion years of, of chance has turned into like a really smart monkey that now f flies in space. I think that's rad. Like that's enough. And space monkeys. You said what? Space monkeys. <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, like space monkeys is really cool to me. And I think Problem. Uh, the fact that that is actually a possibility that could be on the table, like that is a conceivable reality. I'm, that I'm not can, in disagreement with we what can you're get saying. To. The, my, my problem is, and is that we can do that while built. everyone's fed. Our entire well, everyone has a house. Well, everyone has healthcare. I think that's what, right? Like that—that's my religion. Comes from right? starving like that's my Our profiteering comes from keeping identity. people homeless. Our profiteering comes from keeping people away from happiness. That's the problem. That's the complicated problem here, and to, and I and I think everyone, including MLK is in agreement with the fact that the people who are sitting at the very top, even though they change, yeah. still operate structurally in yeah. the same way.
Yeah, I think that's right. And a lot of the times they're using, I mean, they're using the weapon of Christianity a lot to justify that. The black bourgeoisie mm-hmm. or the black elite are insidious because they vacation mm-hmm. with the white elite. They go to the same schools. They they have the same tendencies. It's just that the black elite, very much like every other ethnic group's elites, perpetuate the behaviors that then are modeled by other people, which is why people hold on to their celebrities for dear life. Like you can't tell, holy shit, you can't tell most people Michael Jackson was a pedophile. Hmm. You can't tell most people, let's kill BGZ and Beyonce because their reaction is, how dare you? Yeah. This is all we have. Yeah. I think that's fair. The identification of like the self with people who Let, let's leave are people alone for a second. Exploiting them and let's talk about another like, ethnic group. No, their seriously. only real connection to that person is some like ago, marker I met, I met a, of a vague identity. And I, she worked yes, in a hotel. I, I get she, you on that. She she cleaned rooms. Yeah. Right. <laughs> this is not a very impressive career. Yeah. It's not, no, you're right. Okay. Pay her well. Yeah. And this is during COVID. Mm-hmm. And I remember her and me having this conversation. And I told her, I was like, she 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 said something along the lines of, I don't care what people say. I'm still going to buy the Goya products because that's what I know. And I said to her, I said, you know, the people that run Goya, one, they're not from Puerto Rico. They were Spaniards. They moved there. They're they're exploiting your desire or your or your belief that the products are intrinsically mm-hmm. involved in your culture as a way of making sure you keep buying their shit. And she goes, well, I don't give a fuck. That's all we have. <laughs> it's the same shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good example. I get you. Let's bring Peter back in here. Peter, welcome back. Got some uh, got some more to say. Yeah, yeah, guys. Uh, yeah, I, I can tell by uh, and Schnapp that uh, you both are probably more like a socialist leaning or even communist leaning, which is uh, very much against capitalism, which is very much, you know, against this uh, concept of uh, owning properties yeah, and know that, right? Yeah. So set because uh, uh, I have I have I always felt uh, that uh, Americans' problem is not just a problem from the capitalism. It's more of a racialized right. capitalism. It's the problem is not necessarily the property rights of uh, individuals, citizens of the of the of this country, or you know, of of, of USA. The problem is how the property interests were treated uh, where if they were minorities. For example, again, I mean, Florida. So the, uh, it's the 100-year anniversary of the Rosewood Massacre in Florida. The, the, witch, the witch massacre? So Sorry, you it's cut out for a second. The, uh, Ross, uh, Rosewood m- Massacre. Uh, it's uh, Rosewood is somewhere near Gainesville, Florida. So it's a, about a hundred years. It's a very similar 
to what happened to that uh, Black Wall Street in uh, in Oklahoma. So Rosewood massacre just happened one hundred years ago. So what I'm trying to say is this: is that what I observe is this native land owned by the you know be belonging to the Native Americans are property rights. Slave labors are property rights. The businesses and the houses owned by the blacks in Black Wall Street and Rosewood and any other, you know, places burned down by the white yeah. mobs, they are properties. These are all properties, right? Uh, another example, during the Japanese internment, because uh, I, I spoke directly with yeah, Karen the, the, Korematsu, the, the, the daughter yeah, of uh, Fred Korematsu. Yeah, we had a read yeah, I, I asked her. She, 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 she's in the, uh, on C-SPAN. So I called in as a, as a, look, uh, what about those businesses that, you know, what you guys, did you guys get compensated? She said, yes, there is a, uh, it's a reparation law, uh, back in the 1980s that, uh, I think every, every individual got paid $25,000. But she told me immediately that that actually is yeah. grossly insufficient. This is uh, further confirmed because later on I watched uh, on YouTube, they post a, a C-SPAN video clip, a group of uh, Japanese American lawyers and judges in the 80s. Uh, in, they discussed the compensation, the reparation of the Japanese Americans uh, for their internment, uh, in, uh, including the, uh, the ambassador from Japan. Believe it or not, I find out to be odd, but that's there. They have said that actually that compensation is grossly yeah. inadequate. So what I'm going to say is this: I've I personally felt that. Uh, amount? Do you know the compensation amount? Yes, I read that it was twenty four thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, yes, so twenty four thousand dollars. Because uh, I, I remember watching that uh, uh, YouTube uh, C-SPAN video of that panel discussion. Uh, like, again, these among lawyers, judges uh, who are, I think, most of them have, uh, is you know either Japanese or Japanese descent or whatever. So anyway, it, it's actually C C-SPAN. Uh, Pro program, so they all said that they said uh, for wrongful incarceration, uh, one day is about fifteen thousand dollars okay. in nineteen eighties. Okay, so I'm talking about this because again, a lot of African Americans they said we need a reparation. I agree with them. Reparation is a rep compensate the property loss. So this is where I will disagree with you both again, respectfully, of course. That you know, you know, first of all. I do not know, if, no one has shown me, anyone in America has shown me, socialism will solve the racial inequality in this country. Not yet. No one has convinced me, neither uh, Bernie Sanders or Al Gore or whoever, okay? No matter how progressive they are. Yeah, I mean, he was, second he was progressive that, on, uh, wait, wait, Al Gore? global the, climate change, but that's, that's really, yeah, he's not, he's not a socialist. Yeah, yeah. He's not a socialist. Yeah, but well, Al Gore is a perfect example to me is that uh, climate justice has to come after racial justice because I believe that reparation has to be paid by the European countries to the African countries before African countries can be asked or demanded by European countries to participate yeah, but, but, you know, you know, in climate justice. Burn up before it ever pays out. Climate, 
Let it burn. Okay, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. Deep down in yeah, Texas. Sorry. <laughs> so, okay. I, I, don't, Remember, I don't know if it's, climate, if it's exactly the way you're saying it is. But, but while going back, there's a climate, also climate uh, prop, uh, 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 policies also have impact on the property interests of racial minorities too, right? In other words, a lot of the uh, less environmental friendly uh, septic systems are grandfathered, right? So that means that you for, bit, okay. So so there's a problem with this because if we go in this direction, then we're not going to be able to answer your question or your or your statement that you said that socialism has no uh, solvency in the United States. I think so. I rather no, yeah, no, and no, I think, no, I think no, the main point here too, Peter, to is that, that like no, it's not the no, problem no. isn't necessarily or as you view it, the problem isn't necessarily capitalism in and of itself. Or the solution isn't necessarily socialism. It's it's the strategic and and selective use of uh, enforcing the property rights of whites only, and not enforcing the property rights for blacks or anything like that. So yeah, exactly. If a house is burning, but it's owned by blacks, and the local fire engine company, uh, two houses are burning. Right. One is white owned, one is black owned. Right. Which one? There's only one fire engine truck. Right, Which one right. goes? Do we know what happened? The White House. Exactly. So these are the things but, but that there's, I But there, wait, there's a difference here too. There's, a, there's, there's something that we're not talking about. Okay? There's something that we're not talking about. And forget socialism, capitalism, and all these isms. This is, this is the raw breakdown of it. The American economy is based on debt and rent. And the problem is, is that when we talk about capitalism, we always talk about productivity. But unfortunately, the economic system that we live in is not productive. It produces no value. What it does is it cannibalizes itself. And unfortunately, the racism is also tied into this, right? There's a disproportionate amount of income that's extracted out of certain minority groups, namely Native Americans, most Hispanic groups, and, and African Americans. That's the... That's the, 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 they take the lion's share right. of income from those people. But the wealth that's accumulated, the wealth comes from the rentiers. This comes from debt and rent. And all forms of this exist. If you want to think about the criminal justice system, it's a debt of time. If you want to think about the healthcare, it's a rent. It's the, it's the plugging in into the, to private insurance. You want to th- think, to talk about housing. It comes back into mortgages and rent. Same thing. In well, order for socialism, forget socialism. What we need to do is we need to find a strategy to tax rental income. Yeah, I and think, debt. Well, income. there's there's ways to do that too, and I think that's no. that for generating. That's a big part because that's where the racism. But, that's the yeah. economic racism right there. Because if these companies but, were but Peter, I do. It would I do want to add something to this too and and say um just kind of address your your point here is uh my my understanding of a lot of the history of racism in this country is that it's been tied directly to uh profits i.e the reason why uh systems of segregation were instituted in the first place were to protect the profits of the wealthy landowners who were uh reliant on slave labor both from uh, black slaves imported from uh, Africa and then also uh, white serfs who were coming over from Europe. At the time when America First was founded, uh, there were a lot of situations where white serfs 
even though they did have slightly better conditions than, than black slaves, they were, they weren't really they, uh, distinguished from one another. They worked in the same fields. They did the same kind of work. They did the same jobs and they would revolt too much because they would see that the white serfs and the black slaves would uh, build solidarity and uh, lash out, would fight against the master. So it wasn't profitable. So they started the system of racial segregation specifically to not because, um, or maybe not with the necessarily the, the primary intention of uh, separating the groups to cause an underclass based on what they thought uh, a human life was worth, like a black life was worth less than a white life or anything like that. Or that's at least wasn't the original intent. The original intent was to create divisions among the workforce so that uh, white field hands would be good boys and uh, feel a sense of power and camaraderie and identity, a weaponization of the white identity with that would make them associate more with their white uh, masters, the people who are actually running the show, who were, again, doing this just because it made money. And a, a really good book to, to uh, read on that is David Rodiger's How Race Survived U.S. History. And he goes into this in quite a bit of detail, and there's there's quite a bit of research to back it up. Now, this continues on after uh, Reconstruction, uh, where uh, blacks are kept out of certain jobs and positions, so that uh, with a uh, you know new influx of labor into a workforce, uh, they can continue making sure that whites are dominant. But however, the whites being dominant or at least having a better position than blacks in at least how they walk through society kind of blinds them to the fact that their labor is being exploited and a capitalist is profiteering from them just like they are with the blacks. And then a lot of what Schnarf has said is, is starts going into it too. Uh, you need an underclass of people who are continually in a cycle of just rent, 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 rent pain who you are extracting excess value from and you're getting them on both ends. So you're getting them on whatever labor they're doing. The capitalist who's in charge is taking the excess value of their labor and not paying them the full amount for their labor. And whatever they do get paid is going back into the capitalist pockets through the rent. So these are like company towns, basically like the rentification of America is basically like everything is now a company town. Right. And if you don't know what company towns are, there were towns that uh, there was one big company, uh, that ran the entire industry and every store, every uh, place where you got food, every shop in the town is run by the store, is run by that company. So you end up working all day for a company and then going and shopping in all of those company stores and getting vouchers for like your furniture and your food and everything, which basically just makes you like a serf or a slave at that point. You're not none of your money is actually able to be saved or put into uh, an economy of your choosing or to be utilized in a way you'd want it to. So they own your life at that point. And I think at certain points of American history, you see how keeping a racial underclass is, has been a crucial part to maintaining the profits of the capitalists and the political elites. Um, Mm-hmm.
Mm -hmm. uh, bingo that's actually yes i want to follow up on that point that, that's exactly what i'm i want to stress is that i've go ahead go ahead Right, right. Like, 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 and, and just going back very okay, quickly so, to MLK's mm -hmm. speech too, um, when he's talking about that trifecta mm -hmm. of of uh, you know um, militarism, racism, and uh, materialism, how uh, these are uh, for any society that does not prioritize its people, but prioritizes profits over people, the, that trifecta cannot be conquered. Um, you know, it goes back to that as well. I, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm never going to sit here and say that America hasn't been super racist, uh, that it's still not super racist and that, uh, and I'm not going to claim that every single law that America has passed that has been to the detriment of blacks and to the, um, at least the, uh, appeasement of whites has been one to maximize profit because some of these systems, when, when your system at least is somewhat dependent on you breeding uh, a populace of people who believe in their bones in segregation and believe in, you know, you're breeding actual racists, it turns out they're going to act racistly. Um, but I do think the initial intent and most of the uh, continued intent for uh, a lot of racial policies, some of the things that are affecting black people the most today is protection of profits. And the last example I'll give you is, you know, the, the prison system and emancipation. Uh, immediately after emancipation, uh, there's the one exception in the, uh, um, the 13th Amendment that allows for uh, forced labor as a... Uh, consequence or as you are allowed to force people into labor as a form of punishment. So what happens immediately after uh, you have chain gangs, which are being formed, you have roaming laws uh, where the United States and their officers and state officers are, are uh, picking up black people who have no home, no property and no anything who have just been emancipated and they're walking around trying to find their way. They'll pick them up for vagrancy, which was not a crime before that, put them in prison, and now they can force them to do labor again. And that's the same thing that's happening today with the state that makes license plates. You know, you have license plates made in many prisons. You have uh, corporate companies now. I think I think um, Victoria's Secret. There were like underwear factories and shit that uh, the the garments were being made by people in prison. 
and I think Victoria's Secret is right. If it's not, sorry, Victoria's Secret, my bad. But like, there, there's a lot of different companies that will <laughs> utilize prison labor and spend pennies on the dollar and make bigger profit margins. And you have a lot of that that was going on before profit prisons as well. So I think, I, I think it is, uh, in this country in particular, it is impossible or nearly impossible to separate, separate capitalist incentives from the racist policies and the sort of perpetuation of racism that continues to happen in the United States. Now, um, it's it's just been a part of our history. Uh, it continues to be a part of our history. It doesn't mean that's the entire story, uh, or that um, racism isn't super uh, a huge problem all on its own too. But uh, anyway, that's that's all I have. Yep. So yeah. So what I want to uh, this is what, what uh, I actually I'm going to bring back to uh, MLK uh, is because this is what I found out. Uh, for my book project is this so uh, before i go there so in the uh, there is a famous law called the mm -hmm. homestead act the homestead act uh sure. you know by your lawyer you probably know that law so basically saying anyone who go to the midwest you can just uh, you know put some stake on the on the lot then that will be your land right so my understanding is that many people went there and including black folks but when the black folks arrived they're told they are sure. not they are, so they are not authorized. Back in the 1800s to the too, right? So that's so one thing I want to call attention yeah. to yeah. is, yeah. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine that when you have a system, or if so much of your system, you're you're in the midst of about to fight a war on the the continuation of slavery. What you can't have happening is for a bunch of uppity Negroes to suddenly go and start owning property and breaking the illusion of their uh, servitude, you know? You can't have the black man or the dark-skinned black man living in the big house or else it starts to break down that system. So parts of these things, you know, and denying someone their rights to property are reinforcing a system where uh, your exploitation of their labor is dependent on them not forming solidarity with people who you're also exploiting you need to maintain the illusion yeah yeah well yes what, what i'm trying to say is this is that there is a property rights for equal property rights for all citizens so what i'm trying to say is that again this is another example is that it's not about the evil is not necessarily in the property owner uh, so, uh ownership uh, own owning properties owning land owning a business the, the issue is more of a if it's a minority owned or if it's a minority's rights to own, of course. it will be less protected. And now I'm going to go to the union part because I think this is what you and Schnapp is. So we Schnapp already just said, Eugene Debs, a socialist, a unionist, sure. he doesn't like black people. Just like the NAACP doesn't like women to be involved in the leadership, like Rosa Parks. Is rejected to uh, ask not to make too much noise and all that, right? So, so now let's. So you for the white right. the only right. socialist in, that, in America. That's one, history. and then and, and then there two. The, Correct. Just very quickly, the the um, we're not saying two. I think it's very important to realize that, like, 
just because race uh, was a creation to protect capital in the way that chattel slavery, as we understand the history of chattel slavery and the history of race in America is, it doesn't mean that it didn't create real resentment and real... Um, it's not about resentment. It's more of a deprivation of a racial sure. minority's property owning rights, right? Be, right. So right. again, well, I'm not trying. So this is what I'm trying to say. You know, before I criticize the capitalism or owning properties, my problem is that how come we do not have the well, equal rights to I, own properties, yeah. own business, and all that? Why you burn down Black Wall Street? Why you burn down uh, entire community? For some allegation of not uh, well, being that, appropriate that, with a white woman, that's what I'm saying, that. though, Peter, is that like and, uh, the the inciting event, right? I guess what I'm talking about here is like but for causation, like but for capitalist incentives, uh, we wouldn't. I don't think we would have the same level of racism in this country, like it. Right. And so, and so, but, I but that, that doesn't mean that like the people who burn down these communities, maybe there are some people there who are like, we can't let this be an example of black people owning businesses because that's wrong. But I think the majority of people who did that were like, black people just don't have the same rights as us and we need to cling to that. It's, it's that same, uh, that's a real resentment. That's a real, and, and the, the legal systems, uh, willingness to sort of not enforce those laws is a real problem. Is, is 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 a huge problem, exactly. and but it's all part exactly. of that same but for causation, right? Now it's real now, but but for the capitalists separating the groups in the first place to make this exact system to maintain power, then who's to say that this this would have happened in the same way? Okay, okay, I, I hear you. So basically, you know, so assuming you uh, your uh, position is that under capitalism there will be no racial not, equality. Not I, I, right? would say, so, I would say this no, is my position. No, that I, I, capitalism no. will do anything and everything it needs to do to exploit and divide people to maintain profits. And if that means at some point okay. uh, creating uh, divisions that are arbitrary or making you know mm-hmm. more racist policies in order to do that, then it will do it. But the, the primary goal is okay. profit over everything. Like, and, and, and that's what leads to some of these mm-hmm. things happening so, and developing. Okay. So, okay. Now I'm going to use the example. Can I ask I a quick you... question? Go ahead. Peter. Sure. When you, when you, when you're talking about property, you're you're talk what are you talking about exactly you're talking about home ownership you're talking about the ability to have a business w- what do you mean by property exactly? very broad including educational uh opportunities because i do believe separate but equal uh truly destroyed the uh educational achievement okay. of african-american okay. communities and so so what do you define as like because this is this is where this is where the answer is, right? What do you define as private property, and what do you define as personal property? Uh, someone's land. Someone find the gold in the gold mine. Because my understanding is that when Chinese uh, uh, gold rushers find the gold uh, uh, gold somewhere, the uh, the whites will come and uh, kill them. They would, and 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 the the Asians were not allowed to have any position of power in the West Coast at all. Exactly. Um, they had a law specifically banning Mongols. 
right? Because exactly. China, like the, the Asian, yeah. the Chinese workers were seen as Mongols. I don't know yeah. why, but yeah. I guess. But let but let, sure. let let me go back to the socialist part, okay? Why? No, but, but that's what that. So so the most important thing when you talk about socialism right. is the abolition of private property. And that's what I want to get a definition. See, people don't get definitions from yep. people, and then we talk past each other. So what is your definition of private Snarf, property? Why don't you just give him the definition, the socialist definition property. of private versus personal, and then he can kind of go from there. Because I doubt, I mean, if we're talking about both homeownership <clears throat> and then gold, gold mines, those are already different, right? Like means of production no. or versus home part, part, right, personal. right right yeah, so yeah, so ahead. so peter i this this might be different than than what you're used to right because i i'm i'm a different type of 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 socialist altogether i i don't i don't subscribe to the marxist leninist framework and i don't subscribe to mao's framework either what i what i do is this i just i i cut everything up in two in two different plates one is personal property your toothbrush your car your home um Anything that, that, that you use in your daily life is a part of your personal right. property. Private property is a means of extraction of wealth. And it, again, it goes back to machines, things used in the methods of producing goods or commodities, like the means of production. That's what we would consider private property. The means of production. And in America, the means of production. And when we talk about production in general, we go back to the the largest sector, which is referred to as finance, insurance, real estate, uh, leasing, and, and, and rent. That is the biggest chunk of the American GDP. And the rest of the uh, sectors, they, they, they kick back up to that same sector as well. So we cannibalize ourselves in our economy. So the means of production is really hoarding land. So, yeah. So uh, yeah, I understand. So, uh, so about land ownership and all that, I've already touched quickly uh, already uh, earlier. So let me quickly go to the labor part. So union is a European thing, starting in Europe, in England probably or Germany. Then. American workers pick it up, mostly white American workers in the 1875, 1895, whatever, right? So I'm curious if you guys know, uh, tell me about it. So when will be the first organized labor movement by predominantly African Americans? My, by, based on my reading, it's 1968, just about when MLK was to be assassinated. So what happens is this. So the Memphis sanitary workers, they work for the government, city government. Ninety-five percent African Americans. They want to unionize. So this is 1968, which is about 80 years or 90 uh, after the white union movement already started for better wages, for better term of employment, whatever you want to call it, collective bargaining, right? So the Memphis, city of Memphis, go to the Chancery Court of Shelby County, Tennessee, put the injunction, say, no, you cannot strike, mm -hmm. you are prohibited to organize. Then the union, uh, I mean, the organizer, these are black folks. They go to the federal court um, on February the 29th, last day of the February, saying we want the federal court to intervene because we have the rights to organize, blah, blah, blah. 
within 24 hours, the federal court judges reject the union lawsuit. Okay, because of that, the court did not deliver a justice for these black sanitary workers. King has to take it, took it to the street. I call it because the court does not hand it down justice. So street justice is the only way to go. So Kim, uh, uh, MLK has no choice. Instead of have a court sorted out this, he has to come to Memphis to organize. Then he got killed. So because when this, my book project is to find out all these court materials, mm. how these judges make those decisions. Basically, my question is this. How come the whites already organized for better wages? Again, I consider wages are property rights. Better treatment, everything. In, since 1895, I'm just throwing out an example. I'm pretty sure it's very early on. And the black folks, when they want to organize, the court says, no, you cannot do that. So this is what I'm saying. Eugene Depp, uh, I did not know this. I mean, Schnapps is the one who told me that. Yeah, Eugene Depp, Eugene actually, Depp. he does not like... like to be honest with you, yeah, I'm not I, a fan. I'm not a fan of you. One person... Again, this, I'm on the socialist side right, now. Like, uh, my question will be: divide. Does socialism if you, if you will cure the racial the divide in this country? In this country, universal education, universal yeah, and, and, housing, yeah. universal everything that cures the divide. It will help. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not a socialist idea, right? Because that help. shit is in existence in Europe time, in those I, mixed economies, ranging from very liberal mm-hmm. to liberal mixed with uh, state ownership. There's something else we're not taking into account. Okay. I'll say, so what, what I'll say is, is this too, Peter. Right? Like, it, I, I agree with Schnarf. Like, I think a lot, you I think have it would right help now, a lot uh, because uh, a, a reason, significant population a large, well, a reason growing in the that a lot of people States. actually turn to those more are racist ideologies in the first place is, you know, scapegoating when things are going wrong Their and when they don't have shit. So, Black folks are that's one of the things that can lead people and then you have other people to go down that rabbit hole from, to from some degree. However, world. I do think the, that the um, larger segment of America racism by, is something that's been when truly like created either, either in this country or and even if it was meant originally to, to serve capitalist ends, not white. maybe it's not enough at this point. Not, the the, no, the genie is out of the bottle. Things are different now. And it's, it's very the ideas before. that are out there and the beliefs and the culture and all of the shit that contributes to racism, maybe it can continue past uh, socialism. But I do, I, I think it's important to, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I, I heard about it. Yes, this is what, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, correct. I, I, this is why I'm very hopeful about America, because I think we are going to get to the point that we must have this uh, 
multiracial democracy. Our justice system have to work for equally treat everybody's rights, property, First Amendment, anything. Well, that's, that's that's if we we actually give up on these divides. And if we don't get give up on the divides, then we're just going to continue it. We're going yeah, we're well, just going to have new forms of racism and new forms of hierarchies and 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 exclusion of people and inclusion of people. Yeah, right now, like I said, I'm I, I'm saying this not because I disagree with you, Shnaf, or or by it. I pose this question more of a, for critical thinking purposes because, uh, you know, I just recently uh, listened to this uh, Malcolm X question, which is very interesting. Uh, only him can he can ask this kind of question. He said, "How come integ- racial integration mm-hmm. is always about African Americans?" He said, "I never heard of a ch- racial integration for the Japanese American or Chinese Americans. It's we've although the, everything." There's a good answer in the, mi- the model minority myth. The model minority myth answers your your question. See, the thing is, is that no, actually, I disagree. I actually, Malcolm no, actually saying Asians used to be a scourge. The yellow no, actually, peril. no, I disagree. I think I. Wait, I disagree. Why do you disagree with the yellow peril? No, I, no, I'm not disagree with. Okay, so let me tell me what the yellow peril. Let him make his no, point I'm, about I don't how he disagrees, and then we'll see if where the confusion is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually believe Malcolm X by posing this question. He is accusing the U.S. government. They are so-called the racial integra- uh, integration policy is not intended for the advancement of African American communities. I actually agree with him. Malcolm X is the only black leaders who actually criticize Brown versus Board of Education. He. This is what uh, I'm saying this not because I'm, you know, I am against racial integration. I'm saying all this is yes, part of the critical thinking. I, I don't want to even bring this yellow peril, whatever. It has nothing to do with it because I was carefully listening. I said, boy, he really asked this very cutting questions that nobody has. I, I just cannot believe my ears what I'm hearing. So that's what, again, I'm not disagreeing with you, Shanaf. Just make, make sure you understand that. I'm just bringing this up, saying, "Hey, I want to." So pack this it. is so. What, what you're not taking into account, and I'm, and and this is something you should just assume is is taking place in in America, right? What ends up happening is this: when when you had the Chinese laborers and and the Japanese who were living in the West Coast of America, they were excluded, but somehow politics changes, and as a result of of this kind of realignment of America, they become people that are now included in the fold which is why they get any kind of reparations, right? So now you have the model minority myth. Why is it that these people are successful, but you aren't successful? Yeah. There's a big difference. And the the real reason why is two things. One is foreign policy as it relates to Japan and South Korea and Taiwan and everywhere else. You don't want people to feel excluded. And the second thing is, is that there's a significantly less portion of those people in the United States. So catering to them is okay because it's a cheap way of getting good PR. Mm -hmm. And in the 1970s, this becomes the catalyst for the conservatives. Why aren't there any black communities that are middle class? Why is it that that you guys can't get uh, middle class jobs? Why are you so constantly failing? Yeah, and, I think, and they I think, point well, right well, to the Peter, to the Korean one thing Americans, I will say the Asian, another Asian I think, uh, I don't know if you're like a critical race the Chinese, or not, but I do think that that becomes um, a weapon. 
If you're That's not, why integration always goes into. back. To, uh, honestly, to because really I, I do think, you know, like I said, uh, it goes back to certain groups and it also relates to housing. If you look at the value of a home in America, it relates to, to its proximity to large clusters of black, Hispanic and Native American people. The closer it is to a cluster, the, the lower the value of the home. So again, I'm right. I'm posing it really as a critical thinking <laughs> topics, not as a my right. position, but because of my my forte is always I, want to right. find out what the court said about well, it. Because <laughs> I'm the same, but basically the the actual uh, what's his name? It's not Thomas something. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right and also critical race theory has been has been um but that's not crt yeah that's uh, that's just well, a map I, of, just of, critical of, race of, actually uh, i consider critical critical race theory well, is again, the 1826 school teaching material called the moral and the political chart of the inhabited world where it clearly labels africans and the russians as savages piece together Indians the and Japanese of, um, and Chinese as a half civilized. That's the original the critical race theory. Not what the centers uh, So the original critical race theory, uh, not just the, 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 the map you're talking about, but I know it's like a huge fucking like, it's such a political hot button issue nowadays, but that's not what it originally was. Um, what bell, something bell was his name who came up with it. Um, but critical race theory, Derek Bell, it was Derek Bell. Uh, critical race theory okay. is long and short. The idea that um, it's a it's an application of critical theory through a, a, a lens of understanding American racism uh, and applying it to how you interpret judicial decisions. So it's basically saying, uh, look, everything that you see within the uh, four corners of a decision, uh, any kind of legal precedent. You can't just look to what is in the four corners of the uh, legal precedent itself. You can't just look at a judge's decision. And even though they put their reasoning on there, you can't see the full context of that decision unless you also understand the context that was going on outside of that decision in the world that influenced that decision. That's a general idea of what critical race theory is. And this is not something that should be a surprise to most people, because if you know, I mean, and I'm sure you do, um, one of the most seminal cases for any kind of judicial review is Marbury versus Madison. And that is the case that gave people the power or gave courts, the Supreme Court particularly, the power to determine the constitutionality of a law, whether something was constitutional or not. Now, that's not a power that they have within the Constitution. And if you don't understand the context which led to that decision in Marbury versus Madison, mainly that the court could not risk forcing um, Jefferson to give the uh, certificates or whatever to the judges because they knew that Jefferson would just ignore the order because he knows that they don't – the Supreme Court didn't have a um, – a uh, uh, army or anything to actually enforce it. So the to understand even the very, like one of the most foundational cases of American jurisprudence is in a way to apply critical theory because you have to understand that the only reason or one of the main reasons why this decision came down as it did is because the court knew or had to know 
uh, John Marshall, who was a chief justice at the time, that if he ruled in the opposite way, uh, the the rule was going to be ignored and he was going to be uh, – the Supreme Court would lose all of its authority for all time. So that's crit- – like that's critical race theory in a nutshell is, hey, we can't, we can't just look at the decision as it's written. We have to look at some of the surrounding factors which impacted that decision. And I think another really good case, and this is a case that I think Derek Bell is most um, known for analyzing, I believe, it's, it's uh, Brown versus Board of Education. You know, that decision being made, uh, we already know that Brown versus Board of Education was a, uh, a 180 from where the, the courts had been on the issue of segregation. Um, what Was it Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the um, segregation, the first segregation case it was? Uh, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. That was the, the guy who was literally an octoroon. He was one-eighth black who was riding a train in the white section. They didn't even notice he was white. I mean, he was he was black. He had to go up and tell them, hey, I'm black and I'm riding in the white section. And Louisiana lost its fucking mind. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. They came up with the precedent that, well, you can have separate and it can be equal, separate and equal. And then for Brown versus Board of Education to come 30 or 40 years later, and it was 70? Was it 70? Oh, my God. Okay. Okay, 74. Well, 75 years later to come and overrule that precedent. Yeah. Well, what? Well, well I, I, I don't know if that's correct, though, because racial oppression was happening before the courts were even established in the United States, right? Now, the courts are enforcing that racial oppression, but the real question is what makes them reverse? What makes them 75 years later, oh, 70 no, years later, 70. suddenly? Yes. Look at their own precedent. Yes. Say <laughs> I think 75 years old. shouldn't apply I, I, here because they have the wrong answer. By the way, overrule that, that's when the so called Nader one of the period we really need to look at is, is right. The you you know what Nader period is. And so Russia's critique. To, to me, the Nader period is actually time, the product of, of the Plassey uh, versus Ferguson. Well, and how can you say uh, that, again, uh, I find out you know, it's always the court that started the racial oppression, not anywhere else. So, so. So I, I do think that's an important lens to um, look. Some decisions, you look at them, you read them, yes. and it seems like everything's within the four corners. But uh, I think to the extent that I, I would say that critical race theory, the actual critical race theory, would be something to incorporate into some of uh, some of your readings. But go ahead, Snarf. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It's a great point. Yes, you're obviously correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
that you missed, Spike. The other thing is, is that during this entire time, there was a kind of castration of, of black consumption. And there was a, there was a desire to be able to capture that market as well. I mean, when you're forced to buy through catalogs and you can't actually walk into a store, it, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, is that you remove that so you can, you can feed the black population into the, into the, into the market. Yeah. Uh, by the way, by as far as that still I, doesn't answer my question, you still you st do you are you familiar with the model minority myth? I totally know that. I know that like okay. twenty years ago. So, so now, okay. So you know that. So you should know that there's a difference when when you when you're asking why is it that it's always black folks when it comes to integration and it doesn't. No, include... I didn't say that. I said I just listened to a Malcolm X speech where he brought this up. This is the no, first he, time he brings it up for a reason. There's a there's a distinction. There is a distinction. What is what is the what is the material difference between the Asian American population and the let's specifically black American population who's who are the descendants of the great migration or people in the south that are the descendants of African slaves? What is the material difference? What what is there? What is the difference in their history? They both came here under 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 the pretense of forced labor, labor that wasn't compensated, you know, well or or not at all. Right? They both came in under under bad conditions. One has prospered, and one has been in in a state of inertia. Right. Okay. Well, like I said. This question is asked by Malcolm X, not me. So I just learned that he asked that. I, I, you know, I am going to study more about how to answer that question. How's that? So again, I just listened yeah. to just like two days ago. And I actually want to go back to what Bai just said. Is that, as far as I agree with you, Bai, is that because that, we, uh, Brown versus Board Education is made under that circumstance. It's a, it's, uh, uh, a Supreme Court justice back then says after visiting India, because a lot of reporters chased this, uh, Supreme Court justice about the Scarborough Boys, uh, case. So this, uh, Supreme Court justice concluded yeah. that the U.S. Will, will earn more respect from other countries, not because we have a hydrogen bombs, but we have a better, more equal justice system. So that's his conclusion. But I want, uh, I, I want to agree with you about with another example is this Yik Wo versus Hopkins. That's, I, I always thought that's like a, that's being used as like the best example of how yeah. great the court is until a Chinese law professor, and I'm sorry, a Chinese American law professor wrote a law journal article, uh, showing the international circumstances why during the chinese exclusion act period the court sided with the chinese laundromat yeah, owners which is totally because the supreme court at that time does not want to make the united states look like a, a you know uh not abiding international treaties right, right. those 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 rights to operate a uh, laundromat is actually not protected by the Constitution of the United States, but by the bilateral treaty between the U.S. and the Qing Dynasty. So 
to go to go back. However, I want to just let you know by this that the Brown versus Bros Board of Education actually is right. reversed. I, I thought the um, 1974. I correctly, I haven't in by by uh, by another case called the in, uh, San Antonio Independent Brown, School District instead, versus um, Rodriguez, the dicta in, Brown in which. That the Supreme Court said elementary school students' education uh, is not a yet. fundamental so, yeah. right prote protected under the Constitution. Right. Okay. So, but the, the it's it basically that that itself yeah. is interesting because if that's true, then college education is not a fundamental right of any college students. And therefore, whatever they owe yeah. in their student yeah. loan, they have to repay. <laughs> Correct. The funding, the funding can be separate. But equal e financially, uh, from the you know, for educational resources wise, it is okay to have an inferior school for 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 the inferior right. uh, school district. That's established there, and that is why even you know back in 2016, there are still litigations in Delaware about school funding, and uh, and uh, the reason is this: one of the uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education cases, one of the five uh, cases is from Delaware. In that Delaware case, back in the Brown versus Board yeah. of Education, in the Delaware case, it's actually about school funding because the black only uh, school is only $500 uh, property value of that uh, color school. While the white right, school is ten thousand, right. yeah, that's true. So that's the true. dollar chancery course is saying this shows the that's, that's, separate but yeah. equal uh, schooling is no good. That's the only case that is never reversed all the way up to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Okay, Th that's actually not necessarily about separate but equal. It's about whether the school funding, from the financial perspective, five hundred school for uh, school va uh, building value is clearly yeah. inferior as compared to 10,000 school building value yeah. when it comes to educational resources, right? But in the Rodriguez case, the Supreme Court said, no, that's okay. As long we, as the, the government keep a minimum yeah, standard. Yeah, appreciate you calling in, Peter. Always a pleasure. They, they um, do not Peter, need to be equal. Got, uh, a great show on Sundays um, called uh, Judicial White Privilege, I believe, right? And that's on so Sunday mornings okay. at, uh, it's at what why time? Why when it comes to Blacks, okay. I natives, and other I, racial I, I minorities, Sunday, but, um, the court will uh, say something different. Like when it's a property rights, you know, as we <laughs> know about this uh, SSI uh, income from these Puerto Ricans, $28,000. U.S. government say you have to give us back. That's properties. Yeah, yeah, it's not, it's right? not the smartest thing for me. But the U.S. Career, government wants that. you back um, because you're, you're living uh, in Puerto Rico. You know, you're Puerto Rican. It's fun and I like it. And it's, uh, so, yeah, I wish this, more people could be. Look, yeah. I, I don't see a Sorry world in the future wrong. where people Pretty don't start making at least some kind of personal sacrifice or taking some kind of personal risk in order to actually change things because the path that we're on is one that's unsustainable. Um, so yeah, something's sure. got to give. And if that means me talking about, well, maybe socialism is I good, actually, or talking about some of this other stuff that may not 
make me look good on a corporate resume. Yeah, I know you're, All right, you're a lawyer. You're busy. I'll figure out something. I'll figure out something. You, 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 you um, have balls. You, 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 it's so, a very you know, courageous. And I always appreciate you. And it's, for you it's, to um, be a practicing and lawyer you're, you're, in doing this kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> I could. <laughs> I fucking should have, Schnarf. Honestly, if I was smarter. Uh, if I could do it all again, maybe I'll start doing that. I'll just be a cartoon bide from now on. And uh, he just happens to have the same voice and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you're you're right. Um, but yeah, Peter, I always appreciate your uh, your fascination with the law and mm-hmm. your 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 depth and breadth of knowledge. I'm yep. I'm surprised you're not a lawyer. Uh, you you know, all these cases. I mean, that's the first time I've heard Yik Woe brought up in a long time but that's that's some true constitutional law shit right there so i appreciate your your investment in that totally i might applaud your courage yeah thanks for calling in cool um or you could always hide cool. behind a well, cartoon I, character i i have other stuff you said what <laughs> i should i was gonna say today that uh we were sponsored by like uh well who was i gonna say i had someone like DraftKings or some shit like that. What is Mathingale? <laughs> Summer's Eve. <laughs> Adam and Eve. <laughs> Sponsored by by Fleshlight or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I wish I could. Uh, can I just make you moderator? Do people want to stay? And then I just go and do my own thing. But I, I got to go. Like, you said what? Okay. Well, then. Um, no, I appreciate that's you. That, Thank people. you so much. Good night. Uh, this was the. Uh, thanks for coming. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this, that the um, sponsors for your show. There's a lot in this speech. You should have like, I know we've kind of sponsors that you think gone a little bit away from show. that today, but this MLK speech, um, there's a lot here. A lot of the problems that we're Massingale. still experiencing now, he was talking about back Summer's in 1967, Eve. a year, exactly <laughs> a year before he was killed for talking about a lot of the same shit. Fashion over. Uh, I know we didn't get very into the the FBI's alleged role in his assassination, He's but there's a, a lot of good information out there about uh, <clears throat> I got a boogie the role well. they could have played, which is wild okay. to think about. And you heard the quote from uh, Sullivan from J. Edgar Hoover's um, uh, what was it, Deputy General or, or something like that, who considered Martin Luther King Jr. the most. Uh, dangerous negro on the planet which is hilarious uh but that's how they viewed it and why did they view him that way why did they view a speech that way why was martin luther king jr pulling at like 75 percent of the country uh disapproved of him at the time of his death well he starts talking about real liberation he starts talking about how you have that trifecta of uh, militarism, uh, materialism, and racism that are coming out of this system and this government, which continue to put property rights over people's rights, which prioritize profits over the lives yeah, the of French its own were citizens. trying to pull out, right? And which are engaged in foreign wars for... You know why they were trying to pull out? Uh, Protecting their own profits and no, interests. No, it's not that. They had an ongoing conflict in Algeria that they were actually they were liberating the people at the same Vietnam. time. So they couldn't handle both. And you know how um, MLK was talking about how this 
war, which was apparently being fought to liberate Vietnam, made no sense because Vietnam had already liberated themselves. He talks about how the French, after starting to fight their war with Vietnam, who was fighting against France, who colonized them in 1946 or 1947 when it started, how even when the French, the French wanted to pull out, America was saying, get back in there, keep fighting. This is a system. I mean, I mean, a lot of these, the French were trying to pull out. They were, they're trying to get out of there because they can't finish. They want, I don't know. You're going to make a, <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you colonize too much and then people resist. So, you know, sounds like the French deserved it, but that's, you know, that's, for America to be funding that entire war towards the end of it, and I'm not talking about the Vietnam War, I'm talking about the first Indochina War, which is where the French were fighting Vietnam. And by the end of it, America's paying like the majority of the bills to get them to keep fighting that war. Does that remind you of anything that's going on today that's gone on already? And look, I know it's not Ukraine, and I, I, I'm not trying to say everything, you know, say too much about that, because I know that's a complicated situation, blah, blah, blah. We all get it. Um, but when the skills, what was the quote? When, here it is. Yeah. Again, when Martin Luther King Jr. is talking in this speech, about why he even got involved in making this speech about Vietnam in the first place when he's a civil rights activist. He says, there is at the outset a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others have been waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, for both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the buildup in Vietnam. And I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it were some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the, ne the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. So when, when we see America doing the same shit, continuing to fund wars, continuing to suck our, you know, our <laughs> suck our what? But suck our men, our skills and money, like a, the demonic destructive force that it is. It's hard not to look at the speech that, again, King is making in 67 and not reflect on the situation we're in today. Jackson, Mississippi still is without clean water or a new water treatment facility, which would cost anywhere from $1 billion to $2 billion. Uh, Joe Biden has authorized multiple $45 billion, $50 billion, $2.5 billion is the latest but multiple aid packages to Ukraine, aid packages, money, weapons, 
whatever, to continue to fight another proxy war with Russia. I, I think when we when we remember Martin Luther King Jr., and again, he's not the only black radical or or person that we should be remembering remembering here. And Schnarf is right. There are a lot of people who uh, are a lot more radical, who had a lot more, uh, whose contributions are forgotten and much more intentionally so, because again, the tendency is to, uh, for a, a, a corporate elite society to rob a revolutionary of all of their revolutionary content and all of their revolutionary substance and contain, uh, maintain just the hollow shell of the person to appease people and to make us think that uh, we're actually, that our society actually values the contributions of the revolutionary. Um, you know, there's this tendency for societies and capitalist societies to do that. But when it comes to why it's important to remember Martin Luther King Jr. here, and why I think we should remember this speech, and why that conversation of his socialist tendencies should not be seated, why we should keep putting that out there, is because the critiques he's making have far outlived him. And the critiques are still correct today. And you can look at that one of two ways. You can look at that as, geez, it's hopeless. We're still in the same situation. Nothing has changed. Or you can look at it like this, that people before us in large ways, have already identified a lot of the roots of the problems that we're facing now, have come up with frameworks to possible solutions and ways that we can exercise power to combat the situation that we're in and the system that continues to perpetuate the situation that we're in, and that we don't have to start everything from zero every time. The bones are there. The skeleton is there. We got to add the muscles. We got to add the rest of it to finish the project. So I like to look at it that second way. Uh, there, we have the bones here and we understand what we're facing. Uh, we just have to make sure that when we're looking at these critiques and when we're putting these critiques out there into the world, um, that we're using it to do something constructive if that makes sense. Uh, and, you know, I just don't like the fact that, like, the only conversation that most of America is going to be having about Martin Luther King Jr. is uh, that statue looks like he's holding a dick. Which, to be fair, eh, kind of does. <laughs> kind of does a little bit. It it really does, Schnarf. That's the first thing I thought. I thought he was just holding up some lady, having her there. He looks like he was doing a damn good job, but like, um, that's the first thing I thought, honestly. But you know, then I thought about Beyond Vietnam. <laughs> then, then I thought about Beyond Vietnam, a time to break silence. And you know, that's that's the kind of that's the king that needs to be remembered, honestly. Um. So that's all. That's all I got. Schnarf, you got any parting shots, parting words?
Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you all for coming and uh, see you next time at the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. It's like, all right, uh, take care. It looks like someone's Go enjoy your Saturday. Out. Bye. No, you, you said it all.